I I am hoping that it moves forward with. I'm going to cross fingers of nine dot five. I don't want to call it tenth. I mean, s- sticking with with Games Workshop's modus operandi, it, oh, yeah, it they would ju- it they they would just <laughs> they would always just call it the new edition anyway. Yes, they, they, yeah, they, they don't stop they, numbering. They they stop numbering them. They just say new edition. Warhammer forty thousand and one. Can you imagine the <laughs> <laughs> the branding nightmare that that would be? <laughs> no, Warhammer 4K1. Yeah, but considering that like all this stuff is labeled like Warhammer 40,000, it would just like I said, from a branding and legal night legal standpoint, it'd probably be a nightmare. But Right, which is why the the Big 12 conferences only had like 10 teams for a bunch of years cuz they can't rebrand. <laughs> right. It's Big 12, we're getting there. <laughs> Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that's preaching to the choir. I'm your host, Rob. Dennis. And Richard. Uh, no Kevin this week. He's busy doing family stuff out of out of pocket. But uh, when I say preaching to the choir, I mean the astropathic choir. And that's because <laughs> when we did a call for the mailbag, you know, we were like, hey, let's we've been talking about stratagems and game complexity. We'd love to hear from you. Y'all answered. We're going to have to get some more astropaths because a couple of them blew... Th- blew the brains out with the messages but uh with just the com- the the quantity and quality yeah. there are some really good ones yeah i, I know rob you said like mailbags empty and then you told me this week like hey we're gonna do like mail i'm like oh that'll be a short episode and then you post it, i'm like oh this is like seven pages of text <laughs> <laughs> We asked and we did receive we did so thank you listeners i mean this, yeah thank this you is great. very much uh, but uh, before we get to that, uh, as always, news and new releases. And uh, as always, we're going to start off with Voton Watch uh, as uh, the release gets closer and closer. We don't sure have a date yet. I'm but, still yeah, saying end of September. Uh, I'm I'm here with you. I think September, October is going to like I could see like pre-orders open up. Like for like end of September and it drops like first or second week of October, depending on how much they drop. But uh, we have uh, three things, three units that have been announced since our last episode. Uh, So first off, we're going to start with the we're going to go in chronological order from oldest to newest. First off, we had the Chthonian Berserks, which are. Big, mostly shirtless uh, minor folk who have been enhanced and are all melee all the time. Do you know what they kind of remind me of? What do they kind of remind you of? The Wolfen. I could see that. I could definitely see that. I mean, it just seems like they're going to be the dedicated melee unit of go get in there, slice things up, and hopefully just being tough enough to take it. 
Uh, I imagine they will be. They'll probably. I don't know if they'll be like as hardy as like exo armor, but they definitely oh, no. serve a diff- <laughs> different purpose. And yes. if they're not slicing, they're bashing because we've got a couple of models with like plasma axes. We've got a guy with dual power fists. Just ready. I think you know, pun- he's probably punchy my Mitch- favorite. Punchy McPuncherson there, and uh, a couple including uh, a female Votan uh, with. Uh, looks like th- their variation on Thunder Hammers. So just a, a bunch of bruisers who uh, are just going to be there to run or as fast as their little legs can carry them and, and beat your face in. Uh, then we had on, let's see, then on uh, August 11th, we had uh, some discussion on the Voton trikes and getting a better view on those. Now we we saw the trike in like one of their uh, Warhammer Open Online releases a couple months ago, but now we also see that they've got bikes that have rear gunners as well, and, and a variety of weapons. weapons. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm excited about that. I'm I like seeing the more things about the bikes. I don't know if that two seater bike is like a. a variant or you like have one per squad or something like that but i i, I like the aesthetic of the bike still um they're gonna f- fulfill that fast attack role i'm thinking hoping mm-hmm. maybe and they said they they like will fill a different role than bikes in other factions because they're not going to be shock troops or hunters or speed crazed loons they're they're just mounted cavalry so they're 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 there to outflank and support and be sturdy, which not right. all bike. Even though most bikes will give you an extra toughness, so bikes are sturdy. And I also like they point out like the bike aesthetic is similar in design to like the Castellan robots that the Mechanicus uses, which themselves are relics from like the STC period. Like nobody's building new Castellans; they're just keeping the ones they have. Uh, together which lends towards the whole idea of the voton kin never lost stcs and have been using and advancing that technology so it's that rounded armor aesthetic that we're seeing is we're seeing kind of the consistency of how it's being related to older things that the imperium can still use sometimes but then (laughs) upgrade like they mentioned that like there's a road uh, a rotary high las cannon which is basically a high yield laser so it's they've taken like las cannon technology and just advanced it without like what happens if we never lost it and had to rediscover it so yeah i'm really digging the designs of the uh, hernkin bikes so those are yeah the photon trikes are really cool and then we finally get our first look at an hq we have not had we've we've had troops We've had a couple of elites with the berserks and the exosuits. We've got our fast attack with the bike. We've got the Sagittar ATVs for uh, dedicated transports, but we have not seen an HQ yet. And so now we have with the call. We saw that uh, just a couple of days ago, actually. Yeah, I love the models because it's like the exosuit plus a cape or a half cloak. It's it's really cool. And just all the detail on the armor and the fact that there's lots of, I'm going to guess lots of weapon options. Cause you see the ax or power fist, two types of guns on the ones they showed. 
And also they make a call out saying, hey, here's the, the well, lack of a better term, clan for the, the paint style you saw before. And here's what the clan is for these two. They don't tell you what the clans do. They just give you names. So I, I found that really cool that we can start yeah. seeing at least three of the paint schemes that they've got for the named clans. Yeah. So uh, they'll have more on these in the sub factions soon. So I imagine once the next codex is out, we'll everything's pointing to Voton being next after Chaos Demons, which were, what has been announced. So yes, I'm excited. Which for I think demons. we talked about that one. I think we talked about Demons last episode. Like they had just announced it. They just announced it, and they've shown some of the stuff on the Warhammer Community site, which I'm excited about. I, I want to see the rest of the changes because I want to see what if Slanesh gets better or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yes, I figured after Chaos Demons hits, that next month is going to just be Voton, 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 and then the release. I could yeah. be wrong, but because this is just my prediction, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Well, we're getting so much information on these models too. I mean, they. They are they're working the hype machine properly by just yes feeding this along and keeping it fresh, keeping it in people's minds, but not but not showing so much that you're bored of it exactly. I mean, I imagine there's some people that are because it's not their thing, but I, I just like the way they're feeding out pieces of this. Well, if it's not their thing, it's it's like you said, it's small enough that people can just ignore it. But True. for the people that are hyped, it's just enough to wet your whistle and. Because it came out April 1st, so we're, we're in August now, so at April, May, June, July. So we've got five months of buildup here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, five five months of buildup, and they still, like, there's still so much unanswered. We don't know how this army... Yeah, like, I want to see a giant rules, robot. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, and we haven't, yeah, we haven't seen anything that I would consider to be a super heavy support heavy. choice yet. Or, or a, or a yeah, super or heavy. A Lord, or, yeah, or Lord of War. Lord of yeah, War, so. yeah. So... I'm yeah uh, no there's still so much to see about this and I imagine this this is probably going to be kind of like the sisters launch where we saw a number of things but they still held some back for when the codex hit and then and it could also be like when they did the space marine codex at the beginning of ninth edition there were still several kits that weren't released for a few months so it could be a case where we get a lot like all the core stuff for Voton first and then a few add-ons as they get the kits produced and out the door. Do we think we'll get like a, you know, Sisters of Battle style box? I hope not. I, I mean, I like those. Because cause the orcs with the, you know, the beast snaggers, they did the same thing yeah. for those. Chaos Knights got one. Yeah. I, I, mean, I would oh, not be surprised if... I, I wouldn't a, be surprised yeah, anytime they drop a new faction or a faction that has not been updated in a long time. Sisters was like the first one. And yeah, then like right Black after Templars. that. Well, Black Templars, but even between that, when in Age of Sigmar, when they had the Lumineth High, uh, like High Lord or the, the new elves, they did an army box for that. And for a while, it was like the only place where you could get the models in the army book for about a month or two, just like they did with Sisters. I right. would not be surprised if we see uh, a Leagues of Votan army box. I mean, you guys which, bring that up, and you're probably right. I just don't want to see it, because I'd, I'd rather have everyone get the Votan and just be out there playing, not just the not the special box ones. Well, but 
I think the people who are hyped to play Votan will jump on that box. And if it's like well, the Black Templars true. one, uh, they'll make like they'll have enough of them. Like they didn't run out of the Black Templar one. You can still yeah. buy it in places. So if they produce enough of it, I think it'll be fine. But we'll want. I think the way to gauge it will be to see what people's responses are to the rules as, when they start actually dropping those. That, that's one. But here's part two of that, why I'm, I'd be slightly against a box. Because if all you have for Votan is the box, what if you want to build units that aren't in the box that you have to then wait till the general release for them to release those units? Or well, what if like you want multiples of those units and you'd have to get two boxes, but you don't need two codexes? Um... That will just be, I, you know, if it's like sisters, yeah. like sisters, that's what you had to work with. Like that's, yeah, I mean, now granted, sisters, sisters had, had other s- models already. Yeah, true. Sisters did have metal models, but, uh, Lumina Throne Lords, there, that's the name I'm looking for. Lumina Throne Lords, uh, they, uh, that was, again, that was the only thing. So it's like you bought, like you got enough to put together a small force to get the feel for it. And then you could decide what you needed to expand on after that. Yeah. But it's usually only about a month. I mean, yeah, a few. Some people will be able to get that built and painted in that time, but it's not going to be a, everybody. So, the people who yeah. really want to play it will build it and play it, but it won't be. It's yeah, not going to if they do an army box. Yeah, Beast Snaggers was the same way. You got that that army box, and then slowly after time, like the individual kits were released, and you just had to wait till they came but out. He, here's what I'll say about sisters and orcs. Those you had other models that were already out for those factions. Uh, that is true. Although I will say, at the time that Sister the Sisters Army box came out, most of those models were no longer available. Like that was a case where if you hadn't bought the metal models like several months before, you <laughs> weren't getting them. They had stopped producing them. So it's I I think an army box is a pretty safe bet. But I also don't think you'll it'll be a long wait between Army Box and general release. I do just kind of wish that they would do Army Box and release just the Codex by itself at the same time. So that you could at least see it and look at the rules and like... Because like me, I'm not going to, to play this Army but I buy a bunch of the codexes anyway because I like having them. Mm-hmm. And it might be nice to have a copy of the codex, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, it, in that case of me not wa- actually playing the, the army, I can I can just wait. But or, or I guess, Rob, if we want to go devil's advocate on stuff, what if Box Set of Votan comes out when the U.S. opens in Chicago and the regular codex and the rest of the models come out at U.S. open in Kansas City. Usually in that case, they would say that like the Kansas City, it wouldn't be it, like it might be legal, but you'd have to have built. Oh, I don't think they'd be legal, but I mean, I'm just saying that would be a good place for them to sell and advertise at each. Oh, US OK. Open. Oh, you're saying OK. You're saying like, what if they have the army box come out since the Chicago that weekend just about a month before? Yeah. Yes. No, that that would be cool. That would be God. That would make uh, going to those events so big. <laughs> so. Well, they're already big, but yeah. 
<laughs> but I mean, for like as a as promotional for like the 40k yes. fans. Oh yeah. No, that would actually that would be pretty good timing on that. And again, it'd be the right timeline: end of September for the army box, and then end of October for the the rest of the army. And whatever's in the army box will, if that is what it is, will most likely end up as a combat patrol for that army right. anyway. So yeah. I, I will say at least it is a brand new army because like with the Orcs box, you had that weird case where the codex came out. People bought the, the or people bought the army box, which was the only way to get that codex at that point. And then you had the case where people were going to tournaments wanting to use like they had built their army. They weren't using any of the new models, but they wanted to use the new rules or they wanted to use the new models. Uh, and oh, that was a mess. That was not same, good. Same thing with Chaos Knights. Yep. So at least this is a new army and like events can straight up say like, uh, yeah, we're not allowing this for like two to three weeks until people can actually get their hands on it and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, we, we, we don't know what the release is, but I would say army boxes, if not guaranteed is a pretty safe bet. Yeah, I'm start. I, I I like my idea of releasing the army box the weekend of Chicago and releasing the rest of the stuff weekend. I think that's city. I think that's a cool time. The, my only question will be: Do you think they'll do a one week pre order window or two week pre order window like they do on some other big releases? Because this is like the biggest release for 40k since Sisters. I think probably. I don't know because they just did a two week pre-release window for Warcry. They had a two-week pre-release window for uh, the Horse Heresy box set. So it's like any of these big event boxes, while this isn't like a new edition or a new game, this is still a pretty big thing. Uh, A new faction that has been teased and joked about and promised and not promised and for, what, decades now? Since the 90s. Yeah, I mean, but like I know you were teasing them for at least oh, three years. <laughs> more than three. More than three. I know. <laughs> I mean, that That's was our little joke. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they called your bluff. <laughs> I know. I just got to figure out what color I want to paint. Well, so we have, I guess it's, it's, the it's time for me to, to start teasing them about a, a full-size plastic Thunderhawk. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Do it, cowards. <laughs> <laughs> all right let's see speaking and we talked a little bit about this or do we want to talk do we want to talk about the chaos demons reveals already or do we want to hold off until we can get that book in hand and and talk about it then uh we could probably hold off yeah and, and talk about those more when we are in doing depth. the book yeah yeah just there are some interesting things being being shown, like as far as like how their saves are going to work and how the warp storm table, which warp storm table is not at all what I expected, but I kind of like it. So it's way better than it could have been. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't want to roll 2d6 and whatever you roll be the the effect per unit it, on the board. It, it, it <laughs> weren't it weren't good. I didn't like it then. <laughs> this is this is much better. This is much better. Let's see. Uh, the other things, it's a set, it's sad that Kevin is not here to talk about this with us, but they did reveal what the new Corn Berserker models are going to look like, 
which yep. look like properly scaled corn. Yeah, they they're red and they have chain axes and they look like properly scaled corn berserkers. Well done. And then well, banshees well are going to slice them up. They they're they're appropriately corny looking. They exactly yeah does what it says on the tin. So. <laughs> Um, we got to see they they showed us uh, the new uh, Warhammer Plus minis. Ah, yes, the new Warhammer Plus minis, including a model that, like, from a design that has been sought after for years <laughs> and years. A squat? Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, they. Uh, so there's a piece of artwork that has been uh, featured in 40K stuff for a long time. It's like, it's an old piece of artwork. But uh, it is Azrak the Annihilator, a World Eater's Terminator, with like, he's got a chain fist where it really looks like the this, the chainsaw blade on the chain fist is flipping you off, but he's got holding his hand upside down, like he's holding it down instead of up. But it is based off of classic art, and now that model is being realized, and he looks just like the artwork. I mean, it's yeah. amazing how they rendered him. Yeah, this is right up there with that that uh, that canonus mm-hmm. based off of that artwork that they did. Oh yeah, no, this is this is fantastic. Yeah, and then they did a. Yeah, they've also got a for Age of Sigmar a chaos sorceress with a bunch of little. Uh, little like minions that come with her. But uh, no, the, the, the world eaters terminator there, Kevin was like, can I find it? And now I just need to have enough subscriptions to get a whole squad of these. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I'm actually probably going to go for the sorceress. Yeah. I think I probably her, would her, too. Her little, her little, uh, our little minions are, are just just kind of too cool. Yeah, her familiars are pretty awesome. Yeah, I need to... I'm going to have to resubscribe to... I'm going to have to re-up for Warhammer Plus. I have enjoyed Warhammer Plus. It hasn't... Like, I, I need to watch more of the entertainment from it. And part of that is just because, like, they don't have enough streaming apps on, like, enough platforms. So, like, I have to cast it to my TV... But I have yeah. liked the stuff. Like, I love watching their battle reports. Most battle reports just make me fall asleep. And these are actually short and punchy enough and hit the highlights of the game, but also really highlight the mechanics well without dragging on. And the hosts look like if they're not having fun, they're doing a very good job of acting like they're having fun. So yeah. I, I do enjoy it. And the studio armies always look fantastic, too. Yeah, I I I have not canceled my subscription, but I definitely need to utilize the service more. Exactly. Uh and then uh something else that got announced, uh it's going up for pre-order. I th- I think it is up for pre-order now. Yes. Like they revealed a whole bunch of new uh Horse Heresy stuff is up for pre-order. So, like, the Sakaran battle tank is in plastic. The Contemptor with, like, all the weapon options is in plastic uh, and is available for for pre-order now. The uh, ranged version of the Leviathan Siege Dread is available for pre-order. And during the break between episodes, the close combat 
Leviathan Siege Dreadnought came out as well. So it's like there's a ton of so oh, and the Spartan is available separately now if you didn't buy the box set. Uh, so uh, and again, all of those have 40k rules, so th- it's a really good chance to pick up some of those if you want to throw them in your army. Leviathan Siege Dreads are w- were fantastic in 8th edition, and they're still very good in ninth. so I would not be surprised if we see those popping up on tables now that they are in plastic, and way cheaper than the Forge World versions by far. Uh, so... Uh, lots of horse heresy stuff available in plastic now. So that is really, really cool. And then like you can buy the weapon frames separately for like all of those, like the ranged weapons, the close combat weapons for the Leviathan or the uh, ranged weapons, like the extra weapons for the Contemptor Dreads. Uh, But they are temporarily sold out. They sold out of all of them. So, they are going to have you have to wait till they break out more uh, individual sprues, but those are all available now. So I think we are most likely ready to hit that mailbag and hit it hard because there's a lot of mail to get through. Yep. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners. And if you want to have your letter read on the air, we'll tell you how at the end of the segment. Uh, first off, these are not in alphabetical order, but we are going to start with the first one in alphabetical order, which is A.A. Ron. Aaron Goldberg writes, Hi, Rob. I was l- trying to listen to some of your older episodes that are no longer available on your website. Is there anywhere to find them nowadays? You guys are my favorite 40K podcast and got me into the hobby, and I like listening to your backlog to learn about the game's history. Thanks, Aaron. Well, thank you, Aaron. Um, I currently have all the episodes of earlier than episode like 60 or so now on a on my like a portable hard drive. I can look at uploading them onto SoundCloud. It's just that we are starting to run low on storage on our our hosting because that's gigs and gigs and gigs of we have like 200 episodes in rotation right now so basically once an episode is more than 200 old which is like as far as our rss feed will go like if you're listening to old episodes on like itunes or some other pod podcast app it'll only go back 200 episodes anyway so i can look at uploading those old ones to a SoundCloud. I will warn you, the sound quality is crap because those were recorded around a little portable handheld microphone. They are not good to listen to. And it, actually, episodes probably like 50 through about 70, when we first started using mics, those are pretty rough to listen to, too. We've gotten a lot better. But uh, I, I can look at putting them up on, uh, like, like I said, SoundCloud or somewhere like that. And having those available kind of as an archival thing. But uh, I'll look into what's involved with that. Yeah, because 0 through 50 was us just sitting around a table with a mic in the middle and just chit-chatting. Yep. As, as, you know, and and 264 episodes in, that's still pretty (laughs) much all we do. It's just we've replaced the table with an internet app because we're spread out all over the place. Well, and we have individual mics per person rather than just one in the middle. True, that is true, and it, it definitely we got we've gotten better and better from that point when we switched to, to multiple mics. 
But, uh, but yeah, and also just be warned, none of those episodes are remotely applicable to anything because the rules were so different <laughs> back then. So just, but, but if you want to hear the history of like how the game has developed and how we've looked at the game from then to now, yeah, I can see about getting those back online. And I'll, and when I do, I'll post, post notices to like our website and to like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. All right. Uh, next up, James Brown writes, Hi, everyone. As ever, please accept my most humble thanks for your continuing work on the podcast and all you guys do for the hobby of 40K. Thank you, James. Uh, now, on to my question, and please forgive me for my forgetting who collects what faction. Uh, there's a lot of overlap now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, would an I'm ask- still the only Eldar. <laughs> okay. Well, are we counting kits that are collected or kits that are assembled? You can put them together, then I'll count them, Rob. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Please forgive me my forgetting who collects what faction. Would an Aspect Warrior Eldar, oops, sorry, Eldari, army be viable? Obviously, I'd be including transports and a Farseer for psychic support, but I'd like to concentrate on the Aspects, but I'd like your thoughts and feelings on such a build. Truly appreciate you all, my friends. All right, Mr. I'm the one who actually builds my Eldari models and uh, plays them. You want to field this one? <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, viable, of course. Uh, one of the things I love about the Eldar Codex, or Eldari, we'll say, I guess, um, is there's so many ways to build and play it. And in fact, one of the um, factions, Bealtan, actually has a specific stratagem that allows... I believe it's exploding sixes. You spend a command point and that target in either the fight or the shooting phase um, gets an additional hit on sixes, but only for aspect warriors. Right. Um, And so that, that would, that's perfect. And they've always been known for having the most aspect warriors. The downsides, like right now uh, you mentioned Farseer and transports, you're going to have to probably field a, a bunch of Rangers probably because they're the cheapest of the troops because there are no aspect warrior troops unless you're just going to go with a different detachment because there's four aspect warriors and elites that's a lot um and then you got what two fast and one heavy i believe uh let's see there's yeah because in fast we've got oh three fast sorry because there's swooping hawks warp spiders and shining spears right i forgot and then heavy is only dark reapers. I think oh, there's and actually, flyers. Don't forget flyers. Okay, and flyers. And you've also, I think we could toss in if you're going. I believe the shadow specters are they're the faster elite. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'd have to, to dig that out and check. But uh, I've got my compendium. But but so, and the nice thing about them is they all complement each other. Because you've got your Banshees and Scorpions who can handle the um, melee things, and they both act totally different. Shadow Specters are also elite, so there's five elites then. And your Dire Avengers, you can take one of the upgrades, which if you're running Aspect Warriors, always take. Find, like, listen to our episodes, see which ones are the best upgrade to take. But the one that makes them a true, or like, objective secured, effectively a troop, is perfect because then you've got that extra I'm a troop because I used to be a troop thing. Um, and then fire, fire dragons and warp spiders are the two that I want them to be really. I mean, warp spiders are, are actually really good, but a lot of times people see them, especially if I jump close to something and they just want to shoot them. 
Uh, Fire Dragons, I still have the problem from the meme of many years ago where, hey, melt you want to be gun. an aspect warrior? Yeah, here's, here's your melting gun. Now go. Because <laughs> I'm still going to say they're short range because they're only 12 to 18 inches. You can do the relic, not relic, but the upgrade to add, I believe, it, three inches to them, which still is 15 to 21 is, is nice. But that's still close enough where you're either going to be shot or assaulted next turn. Uh, so they're more of a, I hate saying they're a shock troop, but they are. You find something big and, and you can deliver them with a falcon on turn one, or you can have them riding a wave serpent to get up someplace close. Um, so all f- four in, in shadow specters, I haven't used this edition, but th- they've, they've been good in the past. I'm assuming they're still good. So yeah, you've got options there. And then fast, we said, Warp spiders are nice. Sh- the shining spears are actually really good about, they're not as good at taking out monsters as they were previous editions, but they're still a solid choice for getting there, doing a quick melee and trying to get out. And then you've got the swooping hawks, which, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're good. Uh, <laughs> and the nice thing is if you do put a Phoenix Lord or two in the army, and the, you run the Phoenix Lord with them, you've got extra objective secured because that, that's from one of my games I've played. That's really important to have objective secured to be able to cover the board and take the points. I'm still not sold on the Dark Reapers. They have to have the lines of sight. And so it's some games they can be decent, but others they're just, I don't know. I, I'm starting to view them like I did long fangs of like, you were good in the past, but I mean, if, if ah, I missed their lock-ons where the, they could. I, I think the problem was that Dark Reapers were one of those units that was too good in previous editions. And so yeah. kind of got the nerf bat to bring yeah. them down and they may have gone too far. I think so. Um, And then you, you mentioned the fly, the Crimson Exarch is, is, is really good. Um, especially with, if you take one of the upgrades. Um, So, I mean, it it would be solid. It'll be viable. Would it win? Probably not. I don't. I don't view it as a competitive list. But I would view an an all aspect warrior list with, like you said, add in some troops, add in some psychic. Um, it would be a fun list. And I mean, you you would win some, but I don't know. I would love to see it because, and if you build the list and send it, what you build here, I mean, we'll, we'll take a look at it. Cause when, when are we going to start looking at lists again, Rob? Uh, soon, soon. <laughs> no, soon I, I <laughs> soon. Yes. Yeah. Real soon now. Copyright trademark. Uh, <laughs> but no, we, we do have a few lists that people have sent in that those will not make it into this mailbag, but, uh, right. We are going to do a list review. I imagine maybe mid September, because we'll have Chaos Demons to talk about probably by the end of this month, if I had to guess. Um, we uh, it, the way they're ro- you know revealing like actual like unit stats and things like that. I imagine we'll have that by the end of the month. So we'll have an episode for that, and then I imagine the episode after that will be you know and actually a list review episode would be really good as we are prepping our stuff to go to the u.s open even if we're playing narratively it'd be kind of fun to talk about lists sure then so uh, um, so we'll play but on yeah that. 
send us what ideas you have there. We can take a look at it. But yes, viable. Yeah, there's tons of things you can do with it. And each aspect warrior is flexible enough. It fills its role. So you just have to orchestrate how you want them to kind of play together. And don't forget, Autark should go in there. You should have an Autark in there, yes. too, because technically they've been all the aspects, or most uh, yeah, of them. <laughs> but I would rather take a Phoenix Lord, just because you uh, make something else OPSEC. Uh, that's the, true. The, the Autark is amazing. <laughs> well, if they have a Farseer. Well, I mean, if you take a Battalion and you take some cheap, like, three units of Rangers, you can have a Battalion, which gives you three HQ slots, which can make it work. Or you can take, because yeah. it depends if you're playing Nephilim rules, you're going to run out of command points real fast if you try to do, like, uh, Outriders or, I guess it'd be a Vanguard would get you all the elites. Yeah, and the sad thing about the Autark is, even though they were Aspect Warriors, they do not have the Aspect Warrior trait. No, no, but they have. they can take all the toys. Well, that's true. I mean, you could take, like, if you wanted to, you could take one with, like, the Death Spinner and uh, Autark Web Jump Generator and pretend he's the long-lost Autark of the uh, Warp Spiders. Or long-lost yeah. uh, Phoenix, Phoenix Lord. Lord. Yeah, you, you you could do that, yes. <laughs> it would be silly, and I would love the idea. I'm waiting for plastic. I, I think... Plastic warp spiders, though, before that, before I do that. That's, okay, because that sounds coming. something right up your alley, Rob. Hey, oh, I love warp spiders. You know me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. So you'll have your warp spider and dark reaper army. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. And I'm still, I'm, I think I've got a color color scheme picked out for them. So when I and I'm working on my backlog, we'll, we'll get to that when we get to hobby progress. But I'm making working <laughs> on my backlog so I can eventually get to them. I'm I'm trying. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I look over my painting table and I cringe, but I'm, I'm trying. Uh, all right. Next letter. We've got a couple letters that have uh, some comments and corrections on our Codex Cast Space Marines coverage, uh, as well as other things to discuss. So the first one is from Jesse Udchik. Uh, Jesse writes, hey, I was just listening to the one sentence fix for 40K and figured I would be one of many screaming cult, one of many screaming cultists can take a flamer, stubber, and grenade launcher at the same time now. Gone are the days of cultists forced to choose between a stubber and flamer. Uh, so to note, he is correct. It is now for every like 15 cultists you have, one can take a heavy stubber, one can take a flamer, one can take a grenade launcher. So you can actually have all three of those in a unit. Um, it's just a shame that the box that has those only goes up to eight when a minimum size unit is 10. So, but, uh, moving on, uh, I was also going to ask about ways you get motivated to paint, but had that rug pulled out from under me as I was listening and typing simultaneously. However, the slap chop painting talk got me curious. Do you guys have any speed painting or technique tricks for painting? Watching painting videos almost seems demoralizing when someone can paint a model in an hour to a better quality than I can hope to pull off in a single day. Sad to see the full codex reviews gone, but keep up the great content. Uh, they're just gone because they, like, just our, our top tens are long enough. The full codex reviews get huge, and we still end up missing things. So that's we just we we had to <laughs> we'll, we'll make miss a things call. on a smaller scale. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, we, uh, we it, it, it's our excuse for for we can say we don't miss stuff because we just didn't include it. Exactly. See, or we missed it because that's we our, didn't include it. <laughs> well, there you go. 
<laughs> well, we were already were missing things before because, like, otherwise we'd have to read every sub-faction entry and every stratagem, and ev- which we used to we, do. We, we do read them ourselves. It's just um, talking about them line by line is very tedious. Oh, well, maybe <laughs> it is. I don't. Okay. <laughs> Now, now, I guess uh, I'll probably be the best one for speed painting, right? I, I think we can all, all talk. I, I yeah. can definitely talk about some speed painting, too. Because, like, okay, so preview of, <laughs> sneak preview of my hobby progress stuff. Um, I am working on trying to clear out a lot of my backlog. And some of the stuff I have on my backlog is models for Blitz Bowl, which is the st- streamlined version of Blood Bowl that they released at, like, Barnes & Noble. And I have both seasons of that, and I have all the extra teams that they released for it, which are basically just, like, one half of a standard Blood Bowl team. And I was like, okay, these guys are models that I'm not – I don't want to paint up to, like, high display standard or anything. I mean, I want them to look decent, but I wanted to get them done quickly. So I have primed them in white or light gray, and I'm using contrast paint. Like, I'm – except for metallics, I'm doing the whole thing – like everything with contrast paint, that's a that's a speed technique right there. Contrast paint goes makes things go really fast. Yeah, that's about the only <laughs> like quote unquote speed painting that I I do is is using contrast paints because I I think I mentioned it before. I don't know that I've said it on the uh, on the show before, but I've definitely mentioned in chat where it's like. Okay, I finished painting uh, this model with contrast paints, and uh, well, I'm surprised that I'm already done with it. Like <laughs> that, that it, it it's just kind of a state of disbelief that like I was already done with the model. Now, you are I traditionally used... a slow painter, so yes. See, I'm just sad that you guys stole my answer because <laughs> my answer is contrast paints. I'm I'm also a slow painter, so even with contrast paints, I'm not getting something done in an hour. It might take me a day or so to get well a squad, but yeah, contrast paints speed it up so much because I could just put on my two thick coats. Right, that's the quote. Two thick. Well, I think coats. it's even just one thick coat. Oh, that's yeah. right. It's one thick. Yeah. It's supposed to be too thin. We changed to one thick. Got it. <laughs> but that that's if you can just do that and then just worry about the details and as i guess rob was saying earlier unless you're going for high quality just making sure you get all the details highlighted or colored and highlighted and that's just some patience and i guess just doing i mean there's there's lots of speed tricks that you can do and a lot of them will basically come down to you are trying to figure out how to fake highlight and shadow. Like nothing will even contrast paint can't make applying individual coats go faster. Cause like, as I'm applying contrast paint, I still have to be careful where I go with it, especially because unlike normal acrylic paints, contrast paints don't sit over each other. They like they're translucent. So colors show through. So like, if you end up getting a blob of blue on your yellow, congratulations, you now have a blob of green on the model because it's going to show through green. Uh, so, in that sense, getting the base colors is not going to be any faster with contrast paints. But uh, a lot of speed techniques you see, like, you'll see people talk about, oh, yeah, like, Zenithal highlighting, which is just the advanced version of Slap Chop, which is because Slap Chop is just 
prime black, heavy dry brush of white, apply contrast paints to tint those gradient black and white colors with the colors that you want and call it done. Um, Zenithal priming where you like you prime black and you come in at like a 45 degree angle with white and hit all the highlights and then apply thin glaze of color over that. That's the same thing, just more advanced and either using a rattle can or an airbrush. Other things that can speed up your painting. It's been said before. It will be said again. Agrax Earthshade and Nuln Oil are magic. Yep. Get your base colors down. Apply. And especially the newer mixes don't tint the models as much. So your flat areas that your, your non recesses won't be shaded so heavily, but they'll still get into the recesses and, and darken them. So that's a really good way. A, a wash goes a long way towards, because like if you can paint the flat colors and then apply a wash, that's a lot of what you need to do to make the model really look decent. After that, it's applying highlights and while highlights can be very tedious, if you're just looking to get it fast and kind of and done and get kind of like that general look, dry brushing is also a speed painting technique. Dry brushing can do wonders. Um, I just watched a video from Ash Barker at Gorilla Miniature Gaming on how he painted up the it, it's a couple months old, but it's how he painted up his terrain from like one of the kill zone kits in like a day or like a couple hours and it was apply one color of spray paint then come in and do a second color at a zenithal and then do dry brushing to hit certain hurt certain things to to bring up the highlights and then maybe do a couple of little spot details with metallic and that was it that was his entire thing and he said i got that i got this entire table of terrain done in like two hours because he, it's like, it looks good, but it doesn't have to look perfect. It just looks to have, have to be decent enough. And I think that's the other thing about speed painting is you have to figure out what is your goal for how you want the models to look. If you want the models to look really tight and finished, there is no speed painting technique to that. It's takes, it just takes time to do that. Um, another YouTuber who, uh, a lot of people watch like art of Squidmar. He did a video where it's like um, painting a model in like 10 minutes, an hour and 10 hours, like he, the same basic model. And it's like if I had 10 minutes to paint it versus an hour to paint it versus like I think maybe three hours to paint it, how how much could I get done? And he leaned heavily into like Xenophil highlight and contrast paint uh, for his 10 minute one. And it looked fine. And so – that technique of getting your highlights done, whether it's dry brushing or airbrushing or rattle can, and then applying contrast paints as tint, that's a perfectly viable, fast way to get things done. Otherwise, flat colors and washes and dry brushes. They're, it just depends on how good do you want that finished model to look. And for most things, for tabletop quality, you I mean, you think about it like if I'm looking at it at arm's length or if I'm standing above the table and looking at it and it looks fine, that's good enough. Figure out the fastest way to get there and then just practice that. Practice that technique because like everything, whether it's speed painting, detail painting, whatever, 
it gets but you get better at it the more you do it and the more you refine the process of doing it yeah that's a that's a, a general like just good rule of thumb for like any artistic endeavor is like do the thing and like keep doing the thing and do it mm-hmm. over and over and over again yeah learn how the thing works like i mentioned the the blitzball models i did a human team first and i kind of figured out what cuz i i've only ever painted a model completely with contrast like once and that was like a test model when contrasts first came out otherwise it's been a thing i use from time to time but not something i use all like for an entire model so i did a human team first then i started working on an orc team le- taking what i had learned from working on the human team and working on this and now i've got the orcs like probably about 50 60 percent done and i started working on the dwarf team and i took what i've learned from those first two and i'm using that and applying it there and also i've done like i've used contrast to do skin tones for my uh or my uh, daughters of cain for age of sigmar so like i learned how like i did use them so uh, I used contrast a lot on those, not entirely, but I used a lot of contrast on those because I wanted to see if using contrast would speed up doing like a horde army where I've got units of like 20 witch elves. And it what I used did make things go faster, but I've also learned like I've got to be able to do cleanup. I've got to, you know, it's like I got to be very careful where I apply it. I got to wait for one color to completely dry before I apply another color because it doesn't blend they just bleed into each other at the joins which is not necessarily where you want it it's just figuring out those little techniques but yeah like you said it's do the thing do it again do it again do it again get better at it take take what you do and learn and you get faster at it and you get better at it and and then open up to doing more things right and and always be proud that you did the thing like exactly i like, I don't care who says what about how good something you painted looks. You should be proud that you finished painting that model. Mm-hmm. You did the thing. Doing the thing is... Doing the thing will always be not trying to do the thing. Yes. Because if you don't do the thing, guess what? Those models are never getting painted. <laughs> At some point, it's like, you got you to gotta just do it. And um, sometimes the, the motivation is... Yeah. And also don't feel bad. Like you, I, I mentioned like the Squidmar video of he painted a model in like 10 minutes, an hour and three hours. And the models that he did in like two to th- in like an hour and three hours look phenomenal. And that's because he's been painting for a while now. And he's, he focuses on doing like single model, really high quality paint jobs. A lot of the the painting instructor types on YouTube, they are people who paint really high quality stuff. And they're using the techniques that they've taught and that they've learned and figured out to teach you how to do some of those techniques. But don't feel bad. Like when you watch a video, it's like, wow, this guy painted a model in an hour and I wouldn't look that good if I did it in a day. Well, yeah, probably because you're not painting models as often as that person is all the time over and over again. But also every – I can guarantee you every one of those people has somebody else they look at and says, God, I wish I could paint models like them. Right. Everybody does. 
I think, I've got painting awards, and I look at their people. I have friends <laughs> that I look at, like Alex Hunt from up in Minnesota. I look at his stuff. And I'm like, yeah. damn, I wish I could paint like that. Yep. I, I is it? Uh, does Duncan Rhodes did he do that video that was like that showcased like the first model that he ever painted? Yes, versus yes. like a, a model that he painted. He painted the same model again, and, and like that's just a, a contrast of like showing like even these people who who paint amazing things, and you you see that that like everybody's got to start somewhere. And, like, those people that you see that are painting these amazing models, more than likely, they didn't always start out that way. No. They they painted some kind of ugly-looking models to to start with, too. Yep. And, they you know, they a lot of them had to figure this stu- stuff out either on their own or they had to look at the... the people on the websites that were training people back then on how I remember going looking for painting tutorials back when I first started playing in like 2007 to 2008. So there's a lot more resources available now and there's a, and like YouTube wasn't really much of a thing as far as like painting tutorials and stuff back then. So yeah, every, like you don't realize where they started. And I really am thankful that Duncan did do that video to show people like, yeah, I, I painted this. This is the first model I ever painted. And I like that he has kept that model. And he has specifically said he keeps that model because it reminds him of where he started. Never feel bad. Never f- feel ashamed of where you started. Because it's it's all all this is it's self-improvement and it's a journey. And you but you gotta be willing to take the steps and keep taking them. All right, next letter is from Callum Banbury. Callum writes, howdy, optimal opponents. Greetings from Australia. I've been listening for the past few years, and I am loving your blend of hobby and gaming content. I've been noticing that as more and more models are released for certain armies, particularly Space Marines, it's becoming pretty clear to me that in some codexes, certain units are just not competitively viable, with other units in the same codex that perform the same role unquestioningly more efficiently for their points. Do you feel this is a problem for the game and hobby, or is it okay for not every unit to be competitively viable? I'm quite uncertain about it myself. I also wanted to add a point about the Chaos Space Marine Codex. In your coverage, there's a good... There was a good deal of discussion about how Lightning Claw Terminator builds are no longer legal. You may have realized this on subsequent reads after the Codex review, but every Terminator in the squad comes with a Combi Bolter and an Accursed Weapon. The Combi Bolters can be all swapped for a second Accursed Weapon, which is how you represent your light Twin Lightning Claws. They don't re-roll to wound, but you still get two extra attacks, and the profile is better in every other way. Similarly, Noise Marines are able to be played with Chainswords and Melee Weapons on the Champion. I don't think the majority of the new data sheets are nearly as restrictive as your discussion implied, but it's to miss things it's common to miss things when having to cover a whole codex in a couple of hours of course keep up the good work callum uh so uh on the on the uh corrections there first off he's absolutely correct on noise marines i did miss a point on that where on the noise marine data sheet once i get there um it does specify that any number of noise marines can each have their bolt gun replaced with one Astartes chainsword. I did miss that. I think it used to be they started with an Astartes chainsword and pistol and they, they could swap them for a bolt or a sonic blaster. It's now they start with a bolt gun and they can swap it for a chainsword. I missed that. 
totally on me. Um, the champ was always able to take uh, melee weapons. That's not surprising. However, on the Chaos Terminators, I'm going to have to say you're not correct here, Callum, because while every Terminator does start with a combi bolter and an accursed weapon, not every Terminator can swap out. For every five models in the unit, and we go down to the third bullet point, one model's combi bolter can be replaced with one accursed weapon. So for every five Terminators, one can have double we- accursed weapons. And yes, you could model those as lightning claws. And if you have, but if you have a five lightning claw unit, you cannot have that because only one per five can replace them with uh, accursed weapons. Otherwise, one Terminator could have a Reaper autocannon or heavy flamer. One could have a combi plasma. A one could have a combi, up to two can have combi flamers, up to two can have combi meltas, up to three can replace their accursed weapon with a power fist, one can replace their accursed weapon with a chain fist, but yes, only one for per five can replace their combi bolter with an accursed weapon. So you can't do all five. See, all I'm hearing, Rob, is you need to like repaint those guys into like Space Wolf Gray and (laughs) then you can have all your lightning claws you want. (laughs) stupid stupid sexy loyalist lightning claws (laughs) just have to Uh, to do dark angels right because they're they're actually well uh, (laughs) how do you you know i'm not Uh, now, as far as as far as Callum's other question uh, about uh, it being clear that some units are not as competitively viable within the same codex, uh, this has been an issue for a long time, really, like Ever. predating. Yeah, it's always been an issue when you've got multiple units, in, especially in the same slot or that provide the same role. Uh, and you'll hear sometimes people talk about internal codex balance. External codex balance talks about codex versus codex. Like, what are Necrons and Space Marines balanced against one another? Or is are Chaos Knights and Imperial Knights balanced the same way? Do they fill the same slot? Do they perform the same way? That kind of thing. That's external balance. Internal codex balance is are like, should I take Swooping Hawks or Warp Spiders? Because they're both in the fast attack slot. They have similar but not identical roles. Which one is better? Swooping Hawks. Generally, yeah, right now, Swooping Hawks. <laughs> and and ca- that's the exact case in point. And then, uh, which is w- also why Baharath was really popular. And the Warp Spiders are so ashamed of their Phoenix Lord that they've f- never included him in a book. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's... It's always been a thing. It, it ever since like the first codex where you had multiple choices, uh, even like certain weapons. Like, is the balance right? Like, which is better, a melta gun or a plasma gun? And like, are are they like if they cost the same points, or is it make sense that this one costs like five points more in some cases, or things like that? It's like, is is it okay for not every unit to be competitively viable? Yes, and that's because not every game is competitive. Like, not every... And it's, like, one of the whole reasons why, like, narrative play exists. Or sometimes just personal preference. Like, some people enjoy playing... 
Like I liked playing Tau when Tau wasn't good. I liked playing Slanesh Noise, like Chaos Marines. Like I played Emperor's Children when Emperor's Children wasn't good. I, you know, sometimes like is no are Noise Marines the best choice? Probably not, but I enjoy them, and that's okay. They, it, if I go into a game knowing that I've picked potentially suboptimal choices because that's what I want to take. That's fine. But again, that is like, is my goal going into the event? I want to win the event, in which case I am going to try to eke out every bit of efficiency out of that codex. Or is it, I'm going to play the army I want and see how it does. That's that's fine. (laughs) And I'll just point out that this has been an issue since we've, started playing the game i mean if you go even look at if going back to the history we had some episodes called know your role which we'd Mm -hmm. look at the elite slot we'd look at the fast attack slot and we'd kind of go over what are good things there what you should take or what you shouldn't take i mean and then we also made fun of some units that just weren't good at all like pyrovores no one's ever gonna use a pyrovore right <laughs> until <laughs> until suddenly pyrovores get good, you know it happens. Right. Uh, we we had a number of episodes in the past called the good, the bad, and the weird when we talked about like here are our like five favorite units, here are our five least favorite units, and five units that really should hit but don't. Oh, uh, man, I kind of miss some of those. Now we're bringing mm-hmm. that up. <laughs> I mean, I th- I think it'd be fun to kind of revisit that uh, maybe as we get later in the year. Once codexes stop coming out because they're running out of armies. Or an end of the year thing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we've talked about uh, like in past like 5th, 6th, and 7th edition, the uh, Tyranids always had the issue of their elite slot was overloaded. And this was before you could take six elites it was only you had three elites and you'd have like six units that were all theoretically viable which ones do you take and you could never take all of them so someone has to be better suited for something than another so just uh yeah in fact here's some episodes that are actually still up like we did a know your slot redux where we we revisited that series uh, episode 93 uh, HQ, episode 95 Troops. And again, this is way out of date. <laughs> it was relevant at the time. Oh. It was very relevant <laughs> at the time. Uh, episode 97 Elites. Um, I don't know if we ever finished that series. A codex might have come out. Uh, I'm sure they, I, <laughs> it, I'm that, sure they did. <laughs> I think that was when we were looking for content. <laughs> But that's another thing we could I, – I think it'd be fun to re, revisit that and, like, how ha- – look at HQs. How have HQs changed since, like, do – like, HQs, I think, are much more force multipliers than they were before because of, like, kind of how Aura Hammer works now. So that'd be interesting to, to reexamine. But, yeah, Callum, it's uh, – internal, fo- internal balance has always been a thing as long as we've been doing the show, and it's – like, especially in a, in a codex like Chaos Space, or not, or just like a codex, well, Chaos Space Marines too, but in a codex like Space Marines where there's a ton of units for each slot. Yeah, some units are just going to be better at doing the jobs that you need 
than others if you are going for the best possible competitive outcome. But are there but the fact that there are others that can do that job but maybe not as cost efficiently mean doesn't mean those aren't viable. It just means they aren't quite as efficient. But again, it depends on what you're trying to get at with competitive. Like if you're trying to get the best possible solution or this unit does its job, which like with the case of Pyrovores, up until recently, they did not do their job. They were not good at doing what they did. Now they are very good at doing what they do, and now they're an actual viable option. All right, next up, uh, Chad Allen Nichols writes, Hi again, I got to the Chaos Marine Codex episode, and in reference to the possibility raised that GW might streamline future codices, I really hope the build-your-own mechanic doesn't go away wholesale. Most factions only have a handful of pre-made sub-factions. Eldari comes to mind, only six craft worlds to choose from. However, as broken as some of the custom trait combos can get, it is still a possibility. Uh, and uh, and that, that's the entire letter. Um, yeah, and I think it, it was jarring that the Chaos Space Marine Codex didn't have it because building your own warband has been a thing in chaos for a long time uh and whether it was mechanically represented or not but here other than again taking like red corsairs as your option or mirroring yourself off of one of the traitor legions there's not even that option but as far as like for eldari there's plenty of craft worlds uh, that we don't have a fixed set of traits for. So, like, we don't have Mimeera. We don't have uh, Ibrasil. Uh, we, there's, I mean, there's a bunch that are just list, minor ones listed in the codex that we just don't have. Uh, Eelkaith, I think, is another one that we don't have any anything for. But it exists. It's in the fluff, so... Theoretically, we should be able to make something that fits that. Uh, so, yeah, I I hope it doesn't go away, but it is definitely something that is easier to abuse in some codexes than, that other, than others. Yeah, I also hope it doesn't go away because many, many years ago, when they first introduced the Build Your Own Codex in one of the Forge World books not codex build your own craft world in one of the forge world books. I was like, this is so cool. And I'm glad I was happy that it started going out to the other factions. I'm like, and then when it became, came in the normal Eldar codex, I'm like, yes. So, and I mean, I'm more looking at those traits for my fluffy craft world rather than building a strong one. And also craft worlds, like you said, only have six main ones while like other things like space Marines have lots of, options so uh, yeah I, I hope they keep it i'll understand ish if they don't and i'll shed a silent tear but i'm hoping at least it stays around in some fashion right all right next letter is from austin venturelli austin writes dear desired foes okay i just want to note the our our letter writers have had some fantastic <laughs> uh like we've had optimal opponents uh, we have desired foes. We've got a couple others coming up that are th like, like there's there's a preferred enemies. Always got to have the preferred enemies. Uh, there is another one coming up that uh, I do really like as well. Uh, but anyway, dear desired foes, 
As a player that came to 40k from other organized competitive games, I have always found one aspect of the 1v1 40k competitive scene hard to wrap my brain around. My concern is with the use of battle points to be the determining factor in standings within your win-loss bracket, which is the norm, because it does not factor in your win path or strength of schedule to get there. In an event where two players go 4-1, to one, where player A only loses to the one undefeated person at the event, and player B loses in their first round, player B could still be placed above player A in standings due to battle points, even though player A's only loss is to first place. Utilizing battle points for tiebreakers when players have the same win path makes sense, but I feel the current norm removes control from players and doesn't value a hard-fought 75-70 to 70 point win as much as a 95-30 to 30 point blowout due to skill mismatch. What are the benefits of this norm, and would there be any negatives to adopting a more games industry standard approach to standings? Thank you for taking the time and answering this from a long-time listener, first-time questioner, and thank you as always for the wonderful content. Well, thank you, Austin. Um, so, uh... That a lot of that comes down to how people were managing things. Uh, and part of that is until we had applications like Best Coast Pairings, managing events was basically done by like spreadsheet or by hand. And so win loss record and total battle points is really easy to add up. You have to remember, unlike a lot of other organized game events, 40K does not have which is not really independent, the international tournament circuit now, the ITC, regardless you know, regardless of them, there is not a central governing body that manages rankings for and scoring for 40K. The closest thing we have is Best Coast Pairings, which is not official. It is just the most commonly accepted and used system. Uh, before that, everything was pretty much done with just win-loss record and battle points because those are things that you can easily look at, add up quickly, and put forward. Uh, strength of schedule does enter into it in, like, a lot of rankings for events. You can set up, like, you can say, like, use strength of schedule. Uh, and that is important, although it tends to be, like, a tertiary tiebreaker. But... Where it does so, like I understand that the feeling of somebody gets a big win again, like first round against it, uh, like a, a relatively new player, like expert player comes into a tournament and faces somebody who this is their first tournament and absolutely smokes them, gets that ninety-five to thirty win. Yeah, that is going to put them at an advantage if they consistently win like the games that they win they consistently score 95 points or they could score at least as well as the person who had that 75 to 70 win like strength of schedule is important but also it's like i don't know how often like and, I, and i'm not saying this is in like discounting it i honestly would need to go and look at a lot of stats to find out how often we get those 75 to 70, those like really close wins like that versus the blowout. Cause even when you have like two really good players, it is not uncommon for like, if one army can get the jump on another to have something that is just a, looks like a blowout just because one, one side is able to dictate the flow of the game better than the other. I'm going to toss out something weird here, Rob is U.S. Open. 
I I always kind of thought that how they did things was kind of weird, but now that in res- looking at this question, it's actually kind of genius because your first four matches are kind of like your seating thing, but they always pair you up with someone who who like. If you won the last game, you'll be paired up with someone who won, who has the same record. If you lost a game, you'll be paired up against someone who lost, who has the same record. So it keeps those that, that, like, when did you win your games? When did you lose your games? It keeps those balanced. And then after those four rounds, they seed you into like a, a 16, or I guess it's 16 or eight, a bracket. And so, your your rank, final ranking is kind of based on where you are in that final bracket so they kind of do they get around the strength of schedule slash battle points by having enough people that they can just seed people and then go into the po- pods man i can't believe we're talking about pods again where you've got <laughs> that that bracket that that bracket then kind of decides your final placing mm-hmm uh, yeah, and so that's the you know from an event to event, like within an event, that is one way to address that. Where like you you do seed somebody into a pod or a bracket, and then, um, and then and those are generally just based on win loss, with yes. cutoffs being based on battle points. If like you end up with like right. let's say they're pods of eight, and you've got two people with the same record at tied at the bottom tied for eighth. Somebody's going to have to go into pod two. And that's when you look at battle points, strength of schedule, et cetera. Uh, So yeah, it can still happen there. um, But it does, you know, like seating is a way to solve that, but you have to have an event that is large enough that you can do that. And so uh, also like I am not, an expert in best coast pairings as far as how their pairing algorithm works, because it may very well be the case that they like, okay, you had a 95 to 30 blowout. It may try to look at like who else had a similar win, like who had the same kind of battle score and pair you up against somebody. So like, Oh, you got 95. We'll put you up against the person who also got 95. Now, yes, in the end, those battle points will help win out. And you do end up getting weird cases where, like, the person who, like, you see this a lot at tur- at, at tournaments. Like, if you look at the Goonhammer review of, like, GTs, like, over any given weekend, like, they'll talk about, like, this was the matchup at the top table for the final round, and then whoever won came in first, and whoever lost sometimes comes in, like, fifth, even though they were at the top because they got blown out that hard in that game that it suddenly drops them to like fifth place, even though they had only lost one game and it's that, that one, whereas other people who won all but one game end up like second, third, fourth, it does happen. And yeah, it's, it's weird. Now one place that ITC points or uh, one place where strength of schedule affects international rankings or like a, mo- uh, I guess not in one place where uh, strength of schedule and when you lose affects event to event rankings for like ITC points is that ITC points are like you plug in the results of your event. Like you send them up to ITC, usually from best coast pairings. And one of the things is like they look at how many people are, are in the event and that determines how many points the event can possibly be worth. And they look at when did you lose your first game? If you lost game one, 
because you hit a tough matchup game one, you're screwed on ITC points. You may win every game after that and it'll help. But a lot of times like ITC points get you get crushed on that first game. Like if you're 0 and 1 after round one, but then you're 4 and 1 by the end of the weekend, you may come up, you may do very well at the event, but you may not get much in the way of ITC points. So it's one of those things like it, it encourages people to score as many points as possible. And that is just the, the nature of the beast and to try to figure out how to keep your opponent from scoring at any points if you can, if you can do it. I mean, you will never take that last 10 away from them if they came battle ready, but, uh, but yeah, are, are there, what are the benefits? I'd say the benefits are for people not using apps to manage things. Win loss and battle points is easy. Uh, as tools are more automated, um, I think a lot, like I said, when you set up an event in BCP, I think you can set up like how I want, like, do you want strength of score or do you want strength of schedule worked into the rankings? Like, and you can look at somebody's strength of schedule in BCP. Like if you're viewing a past event, you can see where somebody fell and like, who did they play against and what did their records look like? When did they win? When did they lose? So they have all that data and they can use it. Um, I'm just not familiar enough with the algorithm to know how exactly they use that, whether it's in a pairings or how, like, it's been a while since I've set up an event to, and, and adjusted the scoring dials on that. But it is a thing that you can do. I think it is starting to, like, people are using it more because ITC just, or I think, or because Best Coast Pairings just kind of, I think, has strength schedule in there as a default setting. Um, but, uh, there, one of the reasons why there's not a there's not a universal thing is because we don't have a universal organizing body dictating how people need to do their pairings and rankings. All right, next one. This one's from Alex G. Alex writes, "Dear precluded ospreys, there's the one. That's the one I was looking for." After a few months of saving and the selling of a kidney, I've decided to treat myself to a Chaos Land Raider, which is to be my magnum opus. My plan is to make the other nerds around me tremble in terrible awe at what has been realized in plastic. I'm going the whole hog. LEDs, magnets, special order decals, the works. The only issue is that I've never actually done these things before. To further add to it, I thought it would be a cool idea to attach some chain to four magnets on the side, the other end of which is attached to one of four acolytes dedicated to a Chaos God each. Mostly for display purposes, but I thought it would be a cool idea to add a base for these minis to slot into for more casual games. Do you have any resources you can recommend for this project? Anything extravagant that I've missed? You seem like nice young men. It would be, it would be great to have your input on this. Sincerely, Alex. P.S. In lieu of a donation, I've decided to donate blood in your honor this month. After much thought, I won't be donating any else themed around a chaos god. Good call. Good call. Uh, post postscript. No, I don't see the irony of my ambition outpacing my skill on this project. Why do you ask? <laughs> That's all uh, you guys. Oh, gosh. Um, th- I mean, this, I had this... my one ambition project, which was the Eldar Knight, and I sat on that for years, and then I finally <laughs> got it done here. See, but and like Richard said, doing the thing is better than not attempting to do the thing. Yes. Well, here's an attempting to do the thing. <laughs> this is right. attempting to do all the things at this once. Is, this is attempting to do all the things. Um, I mean, maybe a suggestion would be to, like... 
do some test runs on a rhino first, a few rhinos first to like <laughs> figure out what you're doing on like all of these different things and then be able to combine them in on the land raider. So I have one LED rhino, one uh, chained rhino. Yeah. Just to practice I mean, the techniques. Yeah. I mean, I, and I will admit, like, this is getting completely outside my, my weehouse as far as, like, like, okay, like some of these things, special order decals. Those are easy. Water slide decals are water slide decals are water slide decals, regardless of whether they're the ones that come inside a GW kit or they are from some company that does cus- like special decal designs or custom decal designs. Or even if you use um, – they make water slide printer paper that you can print like on an inkjet printer and print your own decals. Like they're they're all going to work basically the same. So that one's, that one's pretty much – pretty easy as far as designs i mean there's a ton of providers out there for that um uh oh gosh uh like i want to say death rate death rate design yeah death rate designs does decals um there's a lot that you can find on um uh, there's a lot you can find on like Amazon, just searching for like water slide decals. Uh, Cause like a lot of people do decals for like world war two planes, like, you know, like the shark mouth designs and the pinups and things like that. There's plenty of those out there. There's a lot of things that are used for like model car kits for like different, you know, different ways to kind of, you know, pimp your ride with those stuff like that. Um, so there's a lot of providers there. Um, as far as LED kits, I have never worked with an LED kit as far as like with a miniature. Yeah, but, neither have I. Um, uh, like like the, the part, like wiring it, that's not that bad because usually these kits are kind of like pre-wired where you just, you need a battery container and then attach a couple of wires and usually they make it pretty pretty foolproof i've applied an led lighting kit that was made for a lego kit but i didn't have to really wire a whole lot it was just figuring out how to weave it in inside the kit like inside like the lego pegs so that it all worked properly this is kind of the same thing but like the part that terrifies me is drilling out like Drilling out headlights because a lot of them have have the little grills over them. So drilling out like the four little like the little holes in between. The ones that get me are people that hollow out like Space Marine models and like light the eyes from inside. Yeah, uh, but um, like there's a company called Evan Designs that specifically makes like mini LED lights for the hobbies and models, and they include stuff for like model train kits aircraft lighting for like for model plane kits so that the, like the the wing lights blink appropriately and like cuz people get really into this stuff there there's like a lot of like and this is just like one provider i'm sure there are plenty others but they also have guides on like how to install them so that would be a, a possible resource magnets there's plenty of places that do uh New Earth Magnets, uh, Rare Earth, or plenty of places to do Rare Earth Magnets. Um, the Magnet Baron is one that comes up a lot, uh, but uh, there's lots of 
places where you can get those rare earth magnets. Uh, most uh, hobby and game stores these days will carry those because they're just very popular for being able to like modularize models. So, but as far as d- doing a lot of those things as like artistic details, uh, you're on your own. I cannot help you. <laughs> I mean, I love the ideas and again, you know, it is better to do the thing than not do the thing. It's right. just, this is a lot of thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and this is just a, a conceptual idea uh, of like the, the idea of like making the, like the four, uh, having like acolytes that you can like magnetize onto it for, for each of the, the chaos gods, like having the led lights like match up. Like that would so be that cool. it could change the the lighting based on like which god is is the the one that's represented on it. Um, okay, uh, Land Raider LED headlights. Um, there's a video LED kidding a Land Raider. Uh, minor conversion LED lights on Reddit. Like lighting kit for Warhammer tank with fiber optics. Uh, this is from SmallScaleLights.co.uk. So. There are kits that are specifically made to do stuff like this. So, and like this one uh, even does lights for like if you have the rhino with the hatch that can open, like you can, you basically put the battery container up front in like the front of the rhino and then you can like light up the interior compartment with like fiber optics. Uh, yeah, that can get pretty crazy. So, uh, but yeah, there's, there's guides on how to do this stuff. So, don't think that you can't. Uh, it's just, it's it's going to be some work, and it's, and I, I'm going to second Richard. I think you should practice on, especially because you say this is your magnum opus, which is generally like the high point, and everything's downhill from there. Work up to this. Yeah, <laughs> it, just a good idea. Just just work work up to it. Read plenty of guides. Practice on some other things. And and because you, if this is going to be the the pinnacle of your work, you want to get this right. And the best way to do that is is to practice. All right, next up, uh, we're moving out of hobby and into stratagem discussion. Uh, this is from a Victoria Whitig. Whitig, Whitig. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. W e i d i g. We'll go with Whitig for right now, and uh, I apologize if I'm wrong. Victoria writes, Hi, I'm a huge fan of the show. I started playing at the end of 4th edition as a Tyranids player. Before 5th edition dropped, I got into Magic the Gathering and didn't look at a codex or a model until earlier this summer when I decided to pick up Chaos Space Marines with their new edition. After not playing for 10 plus years, I grabbed my scatter dice and have had a fun time relearning the game. I wanted to provide my perspective as both a new player and a returning player. Okay, this is this should be fantastic. I am looking forward to, to this. I have been listening to your podcast for months and find it to be very insightful and entertaining. Your conversation on complexity, stratagems, and command points really got me thinking. From a game design perspective, having an openly managed resource and interaction in the game is good. As a new player, stratagems are the last and hardest thing for me to understand and remember. 
In your last episode, you distinctly brought up how tanks used to buy the smokescreen ability with points before the game started, and then that got moved to a stratagem. This reminded me of how I used to build armies with a calculator, a sheet of paper, and a codex. <laughs> Fielding 1,500 points of models with guns and trying to optimize everything using battle points was tedious to say the least. Having to add and subtract guns and abilities that cost anywhere from 1 point to 15 on each individual model really adds up, and making major changes to an army really meant sitting down with the numbers. There were so much bookkeeping and algebra that had to be done before you even played. I think GW did this and made many other moves, such as such as to minimize the amount of army building math and army bookkeeping that players can get lost in before they start playing. Moving the core resource of the game from a 2,000 point perspective to a 6 to 12 command points perspective seems a little easier to handle as a new player. I see this move to command points as losing the army's individuality in exchange for stopping players from getting lost in the sauce. Since returning, I've quickly noticed the building armies is about what's on the sprue, what's in the box, and what kind of marines are built into the cost of a unit's points. There's a lot less situations like with noise marines where I have to buy a separate product to have a better weapon and then make the build points work. In that episode, you mentioned getting rid of stratagems, which to me means leaving the game in the hands of build points again, meaning that every little grim, dark nook of the game accounted for and ideally balanced with its own points. There's a strategic personalization allowed for competition slash style slash fluff. It's not hard to see the allure of all this. Hypothetically, a Chaos Space Marine player would be able to get to put two lightning claws on all their Terminators and have the point cost to balance it. Why do people... <laughs> it hurts me. You brought it up. I did. I, bring, I brought this on myself. There's no tabbed pages of websites, books, or apps to float around between mid-game. However, even though there are a lot of stratagems and you have to learn their interactions, as a new player, it's nice to buy a model and know that all the parts I need are in there and most or all the points on the army sheet are already rolled in. All I have to do is build, paint, and I'm ready to play a game. I don't have to buy stratagems before the game, and I can change the ones that I do use each game. If a niche situation arises that I might want to use a stratagem, I can decide while playing. And if a new stratagem is released or an old one gets nerfed, then it doesn't invalidate my painted models. This seems not only better for the player, but also better for gameplay and keeping games from feeling samey, even when an army list doesn't change too much between games. Sorry for the long letter. Hope this block of text doesn't drive you to chaos. I'm already there. And thanks for making the great content that you do. Best Victoria. Thank you, Victoria. Um, so that that's interesting. Uh, the thought of this stuff used to be done all all managed by what you what war gear you put, and that the stat lines and the model kits didn't have, or like the model options and the model kits didn't have to match up at all, and now they do, and that stratagems are an easy way to adjust interaction without changing an army build. Uh, that is actually an, a, an aspect of that I had not really thought about. Yeah, I, I think this is well written and it, it it brings a perspective like dropping someone from 5th edition into this edition and yeah, I mean I, I do like the fact that yeah, we can build lists really fast now because you don't mm-hmm. have to plan out the points because most all the points are rolled in to the model. I mean, some there are some that some war gear might change the points a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then just giving the variety of the game based on the stratagems you choose to use during the course of the game. Yeah, that's that's where we're at. And also, I don't know, the first paragraph did I, I chuckled because it's in my mind, it's true. Stratagems are the last thing that you will remember to use for a new player. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely true. As a as a current player, like there will be a few stratagems that I remember, but there will be a bunch that I forget. You know, it's like I'll try, which is why I like having the decks of cards because. I can pick out like these are the ones that are actually applicable to me and the rest I can generally ignore. But I, I don't think necessarily the the fiddly point buy has gone away in 40k, although it, it is easier. So many things, so many options are now just free, uh, so, you know, or just don't adjust the, the cost. And they've been revising that further and further like with guard all their options basically being free now on like infantry squads and stuff like that so i it is definitely easier it is easier to build lists than it wasn't there than it was in the past and while those of us who have been in the game for a long time and had to convert stuff because that's just how you did it back in the day you like back when gw sold individual bits or you buy bits online and you just <laughs> You customize whatever. <laughs> what? And you convert a lot. Oh yeah, like well, that was because that was the thing, and that's still what a lot of people, or that's still what what some people really like about the hobby. What they want from the hobby is that uh, they can convert and they can modify, they can build, uh, you know, counts as models and stuff like that. But for a new player, they just want to be able to buy the kit and go and. The game has to be approachable for new players. And if you tell new players, like, yeah, this kit is really, this unit is really awesome. Uh, if you buy this box, you won't actually be able to make the good version of it. You're going to have to buy two or three of those boxes to, to weed out the, like, the pieces that you actually want to use and have enough of them is not good design. And the kits have definitely gotten better at having enough options in them to have like to build like viable squads from but it does kind of leave it leaves players who have nursed a connection or nursed a collection over the last decade kind of in a weird place because some of our stuff is not legal and that is a personal gripe but understanding how a new player or somebody who is coming back to the game after a very long time approaches it is a good alternate perspective to have because that is that is absolutely an angle I had not even thought of. And yeah, being able to have certain abilities in this small pool of points where it is easy for them to adjust the pool of points and it doesn't necessarily, like you can just take the same, like you could take the same army that you played, you know, barring certain build things because of, like detachments and like how many detachments you can afford and stuff like that pre Nephilim and post Nephilim. And it just changes how many stratagems or when you're going to use certain stratagems. But at least, you know, as a new player, it doesn't change the stuff that you bought and like, doesn't make the stuff you bought illegal. That is a, that is an absolutely good point. So no, Victoria, that was, that was good. It was good to get that perspective. And yeah, the, the fiddly army building is one of those things in 40k that I don't know if we'll ever fully discard because I don't think people want to. I think a lot of people like that fiddly army building. I remember when like Age of Sigmar came out and fantasy players hated it because A, it wasn't rank and flank and it also didn't have points. And then when they came out with a point system, 
like there's no war gear points. You just buy units in blocks of like this unit comes in five man blocks. You buy like five, 10, 15 models and that's that's that unit. What do you want to equip them with? Whatever's in the kit. Doesn't matter. If if you want like this unit can have spears and swords. You want to have all spears? Great. You want to have all swords? Great. You want to mix and match? Perfect. It's the same cost no matter what because the unit is the same. There's like Age of Sigmar has no fiddly point buying. And it works there too. I I think list building in some cases list building is easier there in some cases it's harder because you don't have those options like oh but if I have I can just add 5 points and even it out nicely. <laughs> So I do think they've made army building, they've definitely made army building easier. And yeah, stratagems are a nice add-on that, like you said, it's the it's the last thing you have to remember as a new player. So it does, but also by that token, it kind of makes you feel like it's also the piece that they could remove the easiest and it wouldn't be a problem as much. But we've got a couple other letters that will address some of that as well. So next up, from a uh, letter from Way Sikorsky. Uh, Way writes, I greatly appreciate hearing your response to my previous email. This was about uh, Gene Steeler cults and why armies that are considered perfectly balanced just kind of get ignored. Uh, I greatly appreciate hearing your response to my previous email and felt inspired to continue to furnish your inbox without with furnish your inbox with further content. Uh, your discussion on stratagems was intriguing. I personally believe that too many data sheet abilities are shifting to stratagems, and although the number of entries is staggering, the actual amount used during a game seems to be getting smaller. While codexes like Chaos Space Marines have a bevy of strats, only a handful will see use. Now that command points are more premium than ever, niche strats are being dumped for ones that can be utilized consistently. My short and sweet data, data slate viable idea is to add two restrictions. One, no unit can benefit from more than one stratagem in any given time. This extends to the mustering portion of army preparation. And two, stratagems can never be used in two consecutive battle rounds or phases. I believe the first point will reduce combos, but not eliminate them, and also curtail command points generated or command point generated alpha strikes. The second is a less elegant way to promote variety in usage and cut down on spam. I doubt this change would be the silver bullet we all want, but it could do some good. However, all this talk changes of changes and unbalanced draws our gaze towards the incoming 10th edition. While I am eager to see what will happen, my local community is currently going through an existential crisis about rumors of Index 40k returning. Debate is raging over the validity of the rumor, but it is having a real impact on our friendly local game store as purchases have fallen as a result. Models will hold their value, but buying books becomes a major loss. How would you help calm people and support your local retailer when the future could invalidate purchases less than a year old? Regards, Way. Um, so first, addressing the stratagem point, it Way takes kind of an alter and uh, the opposite tack from Victoria, and that finding units' abilities moved to stratagems makes the stratagems used less often. So. Um, and some of those niche strats. Yeah. And there, like, there's a lot of strats and even back in eighth edition, there were strats where like, uh, you'll never use this, but except for that one time you do, and it'll be kind of cool. Just, you've got to remember that you have it. I mean, I'll toss out two things there. Uh, one, Eldar used to have this whole thing printed as an army wide special rule. If they fought Slanesh, that's mm -hmm. now a stratagem. I like it better than a stratagem. Cause 
I don't have to see it on every single unit when I'm flipping through the book. It's just True. there if I need it for that. And I'll truthfully rarely play against a Slanesh army. Right. And the other one I'll toss out is I really like his number one thing of no unit can benefit from more than one stratagem at a, a time. Although I would take away the second part because then you couldn't have somebody who has a warlord trait and a relic because of those are both in mustering. Uh, yeah, I think that one you, you couldn't apply that uh, there. I would just put a, a hard limit on. You can't have more than one warlord trait or relic. like you can't have more than one warlord and can't have more than one relic. I would just, cause that, that's where a lot of that problem comes from is when you have armies like two or three or four of each. Right. And I think that is, that is a problem. But yeah, the the idea of, of no unit being like being able to use a stratagem more than once a phase, uh, I actually I do like that. And it reminds me of some of the stuff like reactions from the new horse heresy, like one unit can use a reaction and that's it, you know, just to kind of really limit limit the overuse of, of uh, like reactions and things like that. It would definitely like it would make combos kind of gone. And the the second one stratagems never be, never being able to be used in two consecutive battle rounds or phases. I don't think that that one I don't think would ever happen. Especially when you have units like the Autark who are specifically written to allow you to use um, command reroll twice in a phase. Yeah. So yeah, that one I don't think will happen. And depending on the army, like some armies like need to use like they're made to use certain strats like just repeatedly. Like that's kind of their thing. So. But saying like, yeah, if you, like if a unit benefits from one strat, it can't be targeted with another one. I think that would be fine. Like that would that would absolutely be fine. I, I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. Now, how do you help calm people when they're fearing the possibility of a new edition? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you can. No, I mean, in all honesty, I, I, like, I mean, I mean, it's, this is a games workshop thing. I, I we all are thinking a new edition is coming out next year we all i think have the hope that it's just a revision of what's currently out there and all of our books are fine and it's not a end of the world type thing we're gonna put back everything to index 40k because i think that would upset a lot of people myself kind of included because like i new chaos demons is like coming out soon Leagues of Votan is coming out soon. And I don't want to have this book and have like six months later it be indexed. Mm-hmm. Um, Trader, Trader Legion thing. book, anyone? That because that, that happened to the Trader Legions book. It came out December of the year like right before the Gathering Storm trilogy came out. And we had like six months of being able to use like the new souped up Chaos Space Marine stuff in seventh edition. And then Index 40K came out and eight, like eighth edition dropped and suddenly none of that mattered. And it it really stung for people who had really liked what was in that book, us included. I know Kevin and I were both kind of like, oh, this sucks because this well, book was really cool. And then the other half of that is... Once they go to an index 40k, they normally put a rush to try and get books out, putting out like what two or three a month. 
Oh, yeah. I think it was only two, but it felt like almost one a week if they really want. And we got more factions and more books now. So oh, yeah. if they really wanted to balance the game, which they say they do, it makes more sense to have it be a small update and then just keep on doing the six month or I guess it's yeah, like balances that we're getting and see how that works and make it be that living game rather than a, another hard reset. Cause I don't think anybody wants the hard reset right now. Uh, n- no, I don't think, I don't think anyone wants a hard reset. I, okay. So, so here's the things to take in mind. First of all, rumor is rumor. And while rumors are definitely like, there's a lot of rumors that end up having a grain of truth to them until we have something a little bit more concrete. And when I say concrete, I mean some sort of confirmation from games workshop that something is coming. I would not panic. I would also say if you want to see how Games Workshop is now starting to approach things, because I think they, they've taken some of the lessons from uh, like the Age of Sigmar release and, <laughs> yeah. and the 8th edition release. Uh, perfect example, um, new version of Warcry just came out this past week. This past weekend, the box set finally dropped. The rules are pretty much the same, although they added the ability to take reactions in the game. And when the game was going to go up for pre-order, there was supposed to be a compendium that went with it that would update every unit in the game for the new rules. Now, the unit stats like are laid out the same way, but pretty much every unit has had their stats changed and they've added reactions for every, every possible faction in the game that there's a lot of them. And that was supposed to be in that compendium. That compendium is going up for pre-order next week, but in during that gap, they released PDFs of every single faction in the game to give them all the updated rules and all the updated stats and points for everything, just as free PDFs. Okay, that's they, awesome. And and not as like a simplified index version. It's the full rules for every unit and for every faction. I think if we saw a codec or like a index 40k. I do not think it would take the same appearance as the like either the eighth edition indexes where, yeah, every unit's there, but there's no flavor and all the special stuff has been stripped out. I think we would see something very different. I think we would see something closer to um, the Grand Alliance books that they had for Age of Sigmar when that game um, came out. Uh, where they they before they had any battle tomes, before they had like any faction specific stuff, they did their own versions of indexes, but it was every unit fully fleshed out, all like all the like they've they've added complexity since then because this where they're like, we're like on the third version of Age of Sigmar now, but it, it definitely didn't feel like index. Age of Sigmar, it felt like every every faction felt fully fleshed out and detailed. And like all, all the units had their had like special abilities and stuff like that. 
and, and were all broken out into sub factions, then they could make like allies stuff work and things like that. So I think if we saw anything like an index, what we would, I think what we would see is basically like, and it would depend on what changes. I don't think the core rules are going to change. I don't think stat lines are going to change much. I think if we see any major changes, it would be to like command point generation strats, like how stratagems work. There may be some abilities, like I could see some blanket errata, but there's, I I think if we had anything, it would be stuff that could be addressed as errata. I also think that whatever we see in eight, like in ninth edition books now, like we've got leagues of Votan coming up. We know we do. They're probably going to be here in a couple of months. I don't think they would release a new faction that isn't even fully complete as far as a model line and then render that codex completely unusable except as index format. I don't think they would do that. So I think we're at the point, if we have a 10th edition, it is going to be more like the the transition between 8th and 9th than it is 7th and 8th, if that makes sense. I, I don't think it's... I think you're going to see books that are designed with that next edition in mind. I think you are going to see core rules... Because, mo- like, the core rules didn't change much bet- between 8th and 9th. They changed a little bit. There were a few key changes, such as, like, defenders always going first, that kind of thing, in close combat. But it's, like, the core gameplay mechanics, the core stat lines are not going to change, which is why we didn't have indexes between 4th and 5th, 5th and 6th, 6th and 7th. There was index 40k between 2nd and 3rd, but that's because those were two wildly different games. I don't think 10th edition is going to be a wildly different game. I think the core mechanics are solid. The main issues come up with command points, stratagems, and like missions and like secondary objectives and things like that. Those are the, the things that at least from a competitive play standpoint, tend to be the the most unbalanced things. Because everything else they can fix with point updates that they're doing for free now, and they can apply some errata to like, hey, this codex, this ability works differently now because of the addition change. Like, they could do that. So what I would say is don't panic. That like, what what is my, what is my advice to calm people? Don't panic because I don't see this as being the sea change that we saw in past editions. If they did do an index, it's not going to be the stripping away of everything. It'll still be probably 99% identical, but I I don't even think it'll necessarily be that. But if they do it, will will people buy fewer codexes? Maybe, but but like if you're not buying the like. Yeah, maybe you don't buy all the codexes that you don't play, but you're still going to buy the codex you play. And unless you're playing yeah. Imperial Guard, Chaos Demons, or or Leagues of Votan, or World Eaters when they come out, because we know they're coming as well. Like, if you're not playing one of those four factions, you already have your codex anyway. If you're a new player, telling somebody to, like, if if you're wanting to play now, play now. You know, don't. I, I, you know, we don't know that there's going to be a 10th edition. We don't know how different it's going to be, if there even is one. So, And as far as supporting your local retailer, 
buy your hobby supplies. Like if you don't want to buy, if you're buying models or if you have models and you don't want to buy new models, buy paints, buy glue, buy hobby supplies, buy other game stuff. Like, do you play just 40k? Do you play D&D? Buy your dice, buy your D&D books there, buy your magic cards there. Like, if you want to help support your friendly local game store, but you're worried about 40k, figure out what other things you can do to support them. But I wouldn't panic yet. All right, next up, more stratagem talk. Uh, This one from Reese Lewis. Reese writes, Greetings, preferred enemies. Just wanted to send in my two cents on the stratagem situation. Uh, Just for context sake, I have not yet played with the Nephilim rules. I like stratagems, and they can add some great spice to armies and get you over the line when you really need to get something done. However, as someone who plays Craft Worlds and Harlequins, oh good lord, there are way too many. And navigating that book, or even the smaller book that is the stratagems deck, is a nightmare. I think GW going forward needs to rethink how many strats they want each army to have. At the moment, there's a big gulf between strats you use on every opportunity, Veterans of the Long War for Chaos Space Marines as an example, or ones that never see meaningful use, Martial Prescience for Grey Knights. I'm happy with the Nephilim changes to command points overall, but not a fan of paying for the first Warlord trait and Relic, as those to me are a core element. Uh, a suggestion I'd have for stratagems is other than the core stratagems, you can only use one stratagem per phase. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Keep up the good work, Reese. Um, that is another possibility. One stratagem per phase outside of the command reroll ones or the you know emergency disembark, things like that. I'm I would be fine with that as well. I think cutting down the abuse of strats and Cutting down how many corner case strats that never come up would be good too. Uh, strats have no. their purpose. I like. I don't mind strats existing. I just think they've gotten out of control. Well, and also as we've noted, uh, there's so many stratagems. Like the the codexes that seem to have stratagem bloat are ones where you'll have a stratagem that's for a specific unit in a specific situation. Or like I'll think of like one I use on sisters is when the seraphim drop out of deep strike, I can shoot their guns. Uh, that's cool stratagem, and so I, I can see it's there because if they put it on the well, you only deep, come out of deep strike once. I was going to say if they put it on the data slate, then I don't know more rules to remember on the data slate. As we talked from the earlier letters, it's it's good to keep those simple so someone can just jump into the game and have stratagems be that extra thing. But at the same time. If a stratagem is only used for one unit, uh, I don't know. I don't have a great answer for that yet. One of one of the uh, annoying things that I have seen, and really I just have one specific example from the Tyranid Codex. There is at least one unit that has a piece of war gear by default and another unit that has an upgrade that they can take uh, doesn't cost any points and it's called Acid Maw. And you look at the data sheet and the rules for Acid Maw as a war gear upgrade say that it gives that unit the keyword Acid Maw. And that's all it says. What does that do? It, as a new it player, makes them a target for a strategy. Yeah, for a new player, right, it, it right. means for, nothing. It, for a new player, that means nothing. How do you know 
what that does. Like, yes, I know that it makes that unit a a viable target for using a stratagem on them. But that's just a, a very cumbersome thing that, like, I find rather annoying. Yeah, and if if a stratagem only exists to trigger off of one unit, and, like, in, like, I know in the, uh, I want to say in the Eldari Codex, there's a strat that just affects Shroud Runners. Like, it's like, that doesn't need to cost command points. Just have that as an ability on the unit. And to, like, address Victoria's concern about, like, you know, this shouldn't, you know, well, we'll make it cost points again. There's plenty of upgrades that are free. It's just like, this can have one of two abilities. You can use them once per turn. That doesn't need to be a stratagem. It really doesn't. And a lot of the war gear ones are feel like that. Like this doesn't need to be here as a stratagem. There's no reason for it to be. So, I I uh, I would like to see more of those kinds of things not be stratagems because they don't make sense as stratagems. So, yeah, there's got to be a better way to to do that for a new player than just say, oh yeah, this gives you a keyword. Even as an existing player, like okay, so what does this keyword do? Flip through book, look for like does another unit key off of that, and then finally realizing, oh no, wait, there's a stratagem, and there's one stratagem that affects one unit that has for reasons that doesn't need to be a stratagem and wouldn't have been in the previous edition. So yeah, get rid, get rid of those niche ones. They don't need to be there. Just put them on the units. It's fine. All right. Next up, Samuel green, continuing our stratagem talk. Hey lads, you asked about opinions on the cut all stratagems topic. For me, stratagems represent the secret special moves of my sub faction. They provide tons more flavor than simple sixes give plus one to AP, and unit rules rarely distinguish sub factions. I think the condensed set of 10 to 12 stratagems per sub faction is what I'd like to see, and that's it. No general stratagems, no command rerolls or shared faction ones. Only specialized, and if different, factions need simple things like a command reroll, reprint them as one out of the 10 to 12 that's in that faction's deck. The ability to learn what your opponent can do and not do will give fledgling competitive players a much easier grasp of the possibility space and the sub factions would play truly differently sub factions will still have genuine weaknesses and special moves what do you think sam from london i like this idea i like this idea a lot i like half of it (laughs) you you i'm guessing the part you don't like is getting rid of general stratagems right i think general stratagems should stay there because they're they're core stratagems everyone but i i I feel like i feel like there is an argument to be made for actually making more core stratagems instead of like so many like niche stratagems in in so many books that are kind of the same but a little bit different like i i feel like there's a way to do that yeah but i'll say overall i love the idea of making each sub faction i mean we we already have like one sometimes two stratagems you'll see for a sub mostly one for a sub faction but if you did break that out and removed all the little niche ones per unit and then because they're supposed to make the units do special but like i said move some of those rules to on back onto the data sheet but have the sub faction have more so that way you can tailor 
how that sub-faction is supposed to play, how that craft world is supposed to play, how that sub-successor chapter is supposed to play. Mm -hmm. That would be really cool, and it would definitely differentiate the sub-factions more. So pivot, instead of getting rid of stratagems, make more... (laughs) (laughs) that's the answer more in a limited way (laughs) right (laughs) Uh, so what yeah what i was gonna say is that we kind of saw a little bit of that kind of moving in that direction in chaos space marines where each legion basically had like eight stratagems that was just theirs now they also had like a few pages of general purpose stratagems for all the legions and i think think I'd be fine with getting rid of those save for maybe like one for each of the chaos gods so like your marked units could have a stratagem to key off of but that like you could have that on a on like a two page spread with like here's the marks and the mark system then here's the strats for those marks and then here's the strats for your your legion and that's it apart from the generic ones in the core rule book. I think that would be a good balance. I think that would go a long way towards, yeah, making factions, sub factions really matter besides what is the one stratagem that they can abuse and unlock as opposed to like, Hey, here's the stratagems that make this one feel different, but still use the same units as everything else in their faction. I think, I think that's about where my happy spot would be on stratagems. In which case, if you want, there's your index 40k for 10th edition. It's just yeah, new pages new of strategy strategy. books. <laughs> no, yes, yeah. just new strategy. We we are not like maybe apply errata to those units where they had abilities that have been turned into stratagems. Like we're, we're adding it, like where this says, like add the acid maw keyword. It ga- it gains this ability once per turn, that kind of thing, and then everything else just becomes like, "Hey, Hive Fleet Leviathan has these eight stratagems or these ten stratagems, and that's what they do. Nobody else does this. That would be cool. I would be very yeah. happy with that." And then our final letter of the evening. Our final letter is from Paul Candle. Paul writes, "Hello, guys." A number of months back, when the first changes to rules updates and changes came out for 40k, I asked you all about switching to a new edition, which I don't think anyone saw on the horizon, and I was merely spitballing. However, with your recent show addressing the complexity, I heard you all mention the rapid changes which brought this front to to the front of my mind again. I do not like the rapid changes in FAQs at this point, because when I first asked, 9th edition had not gotten to this bloated complex point. In the meantime, I have restarted Horus Heresy with the 2.0 launch. I have shelved play in the new Nephilim rule set for this 8-week and next 8-week season. I don't think the changes are worth paying for more models to play in a competitive-ish environment. My friendly games are still fine. My questions now are... Do you all think 10th edition will include a living online rule set to supplement any book release, including the slimming down of strats or other rules bloat? What would you like to see in the next starter box? I like the idea of guard versus demons fighting for Terra, but the books are out are due out soon, and I don't know if that makes sense in a new release. As always, stay well and safe. Paul. Um, so, do, we, do you all think 10th will include a living online rule set? No, because none of the games have included a, a living online rule set yet. And I'm including games I that just came it. out. 
I would love it. I don't think it's going to have not the full rule. They'll have the core rules and they'll apply errata to them semi regularly, but not in the sense of like an online rule book that they can just change. There's nothing else you have to have versioning so that everybody knows what the same rule is. But one of the easiest ways to get everybody on the same page is just to release a big book and or release the core rules for free. Which, by the way, they just did for Kill Team. All the, the core rules for Kill Team are now free. So uh, that was that was kind of interesting to see them drop that this week. Um, but, yeah, do I think 10th edition will be a living rules online rule set? No. Because that's just not how Games Workshop does it. They enjoy their book sales too much. Do I think it will include the slimming down of strats and other rules bloat? Oh, please, please, can it be? Please, we just had, the, we just discussed this. I would love to see a new strat, like a, a strat document for every faction that just, like, here are the strats every sub-faction has and we're good. Yes, I would love that. And do I think they would do that? Yes, that I think they would do. If if that's what they choose to do with the 10th edition, then yes, they would absolutely re- re- release that as a free document. And then possibly, because like the compendium for Warcry is still going up for pre-order, so they're making it available in a dead tree format for people who want it that way. And it may have some expanded like campaign stuff in it as well. So like... I could see an online version or like a free PDF version of like, here's all the new stratagem stuff. And then here's the book that has all the new stratagem stuff and the new crusade stuff for every, like I could see that. Absolutely. Like make the stuff that you need for competitive play free. And then the stuff for people who want that and more make that as a print book. I think that would be totally fine. I think people would be generally happy with that. Um, what they've been doing with age of Sigmar third edition in white dwarf is like units or like armies that are getting battle tomes soon or like get like full battle tome releases. Everybody else, like every month they update one army in, um, in white dwarf to have, like the extra components it needs for the new edition. The rules haven't changed. Like the, the fundamental unit rules haven't changed, but they give them like the little extra bits that make it easier to play in the new Age of Sigmar. It would be the equivalent of if every month in 40K, instead of releasing a codex, they had released for White Dwarf, like, hey, here's the new, uh, Here's a couple of new strats and uh, new uh, secondary objectives for like Tau or Guard or Chaos Demons, stuff like that. Like have those available. I think that would have been good. So that I could absolutely see them doing for free, but not a not a living online rulebook. They might release the core rules as as a free download as they have done before. Um, they won't include the army building portions of that because. Well, I shouldn't say they won't or they'll never, but they haven't done that yet. Now, what do I think would be in the new starter box for 10th edition? Ah, it'll be Space Marines. (laughs) One half will be Space Marines because it's always Space Marines. It's always Space Marines. Marines. Yeah, I don't think they would do Guard versus Demons. Like Imperial Guard... I don't think would ever end up being the the faction that they would want to put the focus on for a new new edition. I could I could theoretically see a mix of like uh, I could see sisters maybe, but it'll it'll be space marines. 
it just depends who they want the big bad to be this time around. Um, and they've used orcs, they've used Tyranids, they've used Necrons. Uh, Chaos Space Marines against Dark Angels. So, like, it could yeah. be a particular variety of Space Marines rather than Ultramarines. So, I could see, like, I could see Space Wolves versus Thousand Suns. Oh, like that would that. be cool. And bring back Lehman Russ. I don't think they'd put him in a starter set. No, not the starter not- set, but he could be like the extra thing that came with the release. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that, I could see that. Um, but yeah, I, like I could see something along those lines, like a particular variety of Space Marines. Although I don't know if they would do Space Wolves because they aren't generic enough. But then neither were Dark Angels, and they were in the starter set for a long time. So I don't see why they couldn't do Space Wolves. But, uh, no, it'll be some flavor of Space Marines and then insert Big Bad here. Ooh, maybe they'll have a new Big Bad faction. I I doubt it. I doubt they'll introduce a new. I mean, I could see them doing, I could see Space Marines versus Gene Stealer Cult. They haven't done a, I mean, we had Death Watch Overkill several years ago, but it, they haven't done a starter box with that yet. We could see them versus another variety of Chaos Space Marines. I could see uh, Space Marines versus World Eaters, since they're getting a new book, and that would be a chance for them to get a new bunch of models out for that army. I I mean, although if we just see what I would like to see in the starter box and not what we think it would be, Mm -hmm. and I I would love to see Yunari and Chaos Demons. Okay, that would be cool. Um See, I would love I would love to see them use sisters rather than space marines. And if you've got sisters, like there's any number of things you sisters versus traitor guard. There we go. There's my dream box. That's, <laughs> I could use both halves. I could use every part of the buffalo in that case. So, so that, what that would, would you be, use the box for terrain. Well, storage of of the okay. sprues while they sit on my shelves of shame until I actually build them. <laughs> fair, fair. I, 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 that's why my, I have my shelves of shame out visibly so I can look over at them and see them all the time and have them, they're not socked away in a closet somewhere. So I have to look at my shame every day. How about you, Richard? What would your, uh, dream, uh, starter box be? It, it's been a little while since we've had orcs in a box. Mm, this is true. In a starter box. Um, so like, you know, orcs versus uh, Death Watch. Ooh, that'd be a good one. Death Watch hasn't been around for a bit, and that would give them a way to flush them out more. Yeah. And it would give you two very different feels of the the Horde army versus the very, very elite army. Yeah. So that, that'd, be, that'd be a good way to have, like, different feels for different players. And... Death Watch stuff is still generic enough. You can play them as pretty much any space marine you want, other than like the the fancy shoulder pads. But <laughs> Death Watch can be from any chapter, so why not? Yeah, right. Super easy to paint too. <laughs> Although Rob, I will toss this out there. R- Richard said orcs in a box, and it made me think of Elf on the Shelf. So it makes me think for like the holidays, you need to get a box of Eldari just so you can put it on your shelf. Oh wait, you already have some. <laughs> I have many boxes of Eldari. 
Okay, and I, I keep, I, I was looking at the point. I was looking at possibly building Eldari to take to the U.S. Open narrative, and unfortunately, with what I have, considering how many of my points are, like one of the things I have is the avatar, and you can't start with the avatar. I can't you can actually buy field. game three or four. Yeah, but I can't fill. I can't build an actual hundred PL army without him. <laughs> so the f- well, the first two battles were only fifty PL. Right, but game three is, and it's like you'd have to play everything just perfect to to right. pull it off. So, uh, I I would need to buy. F- it's theoretically doable, but I'd have to buy a couple more kits to be able to pad out a hundred PL and then swap in the avatar at you know, the right point. So, right, um, we'll t- so uh, actually, this is a perfect segue. So, this was all our letters. Uh, so again, thank you to everyone who wrote in. This is like the most mail we've had in a long while. And it was awesome to get everybody's feedback, especially on like the stratagems, the complexity, the new edition that may or may not be coming, um, correcting us on a couple of uh, Chaos Space Marine stuff. Uh, like this is this has been fantastic. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. And if you want to have your letter read on the air, whether it's a comment or a correction or a question or, you know, whether it's hobby question, rules question, etc. Uh, three good ways to do that. First way is to email us. You can email us at our first names at preferredenemies.com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com or our first names, one word, at preferredenemies.com. Second is Facebook. You can uh, find us at facebook.com slash preferredenemies. Uh, like us there. Follow us. We post like uh, new episode updates, uh, and uh, like things that we're working on, our take on certain p- pieces of news. Uh, so like us there, follow us, send us messages. Third is Twitter. We are twitter.com slash preferred enemy singular. And we take comments uh, and questions and messages from all those sources, throw them together and try to get through as many as we can in an episode. Normally, we don't get through this many because this is just like one part of a larger episode. But this time, this was the episode itself. So we put all of it here. But yeah, go ahead and send those in. We are going to look at doing a list review episode in uh, September. So uh, we've got a couple that are backed up. Uh, so we can't, I can't guarantee that everyone will get their list in if they send in list review lists to review. We've got a, a few backlog, but uh, we will, we will take a look at some of those, but those do not generally make it into every, every episode. So just be aware of that. Uh, also, if you want to help support the show, uh, we do have a Patreon. Now, as always, if you have the means to support us, uh, you also have the means to help out your local community. So please use your wargaming powers for awesome and help your local community first, whether it's uh, volunteering at uh, a local like like food pantry, shelter, donating money to a charity, helping out at a Goodwill, like whatever you can do for like local charities, donate to them first. Uh, We have a listener who is donating blood in our name. And that is awesome. A little bit creepy, but also very cool because that is like, I can't, I turn gray if I try to give blood. So I'm glad that somebody else is able to, to do it. So uh, no, that is fantastic. But if after that you still want to support the show, then you can go to patreon.com slash preferred enemies. And it's basically an online tip jar. We don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall. All our episodes are free to listen to for everyone. And I will try to get those older episodes up somewhere where they are listenable. But uh, if you want to support the show, even if it's just a dollar a month, it adds up your dollar 
will help support our uh, web hosting, including the fact that, you know, yes, uh, with the web hosting we have, yes, I have to rotate episodes out, but we still have web hosting for over 200 episodes. Um, you help pay for our recording service so that we are recording from all around the country. Uh, you help support uh, fixing microphones when they stop working. You uh, help support us being able to travel to events, uh, especially with uh, U.S. Open coming up. Kevin and Dennis will be traveling back up here to KC. So that will help do things like, you know, kind of defray the cost of the hotel room and stuff for them. So your dollars really help us out and we really do appreciate it and helps keep the show like income neutral so that basically you all are paying for the show to continue. So we really appreciate it. And with that, I do want to transition over to hobby progress. So, U.S. Open is coming up at the end of October here in Kansas City, and I, uh, Kevin was actually here in KC briefly on his way to Gen Con, and so he came by the Monday night before uh, Gen Con. We were originally going to try to get a game in, which is why I spent like the week or the week before that hustling to get a lot of terrain built and painted so I could have a fully fleshed out like U.S. Open style table, which I do now. So I got several kits that have been sitting on my shelves of shame like built and several of them painted others are still like primed and halfway painted but i made a lot of progress on terrain so that felt really good uh and then we talked about like what are what are you going to play at the u.s open and i we we talked about maybe play maybe i could play sisters or maybe i could play eldari although again with the avatar i'd have to buy a couple more things which would probably be Oh, would this make you happy? Dennis, probably like a box of Banshees and, you know, something else, maybe a Jane Zara to go in there to mix and match stuff. Can't go wrong with either of those two. No, can't. But then we started talking about Tau. I haven't played my Tau in a while. I actually haven't played Tau in the new edition with the new codex yet. Uh, and so I like, we started talking and I started putting together a list like for the first 50 PL, which covers the first, because, okay, so for if you don't know, the US Open, you have to be able to, you have a total combat roster of 100 PL. And then from that, you have to be able to make 50 PL lists for the first two games and then 100 PL lists for the next three. And the final game is a is 100 PL and 2,000 points. So you have to have a legal 2,000 point list that is also 100 PL that you can build 50 PL armies out of. And so we started talking and we had been talking, like Kevin was talking about like doing some world eater stuff and he had the Imperial Armor Compendium out. And he said, okay, so you need a 50 PL army and then you need another 50 PL on top of that. And so I started like, pricing out like a uh, point wise or power level wise, a 50 PL army for Tau and like the 50 PL for the first couple of games. It's pretty easy. It's like a uh, commander, a unit of crisis suits, uh, an ethereal two units, of two strike teams, a breacher team, a devilfish for the breacher team, uh, a broadside and like a unit of pathfinders, just, you know, a very well-rounded take all comers, kind of list which is what you would want for that first 50 pl a little bit of everything that comes in at a thousand points exactly like though i kitted it out it's a thousand points exactly 50 pl perfect so now i just need to find another thousand points 50 pl i found it it's called a town art i was gonna guess that <laughs> <laughs> yep so my first my first two games like here's my here's my like tau expeditionary force 
This is the this was the army that's going to go out and kind of like probe defenses, find out what's going on. Okay, we found out what's going on. We bring the town art for the extra fifty. I'm here for it. It's going to be stupid and fun, and I love it. So, I already have the town art built and painted, but I did not have a unit of the new crisis suits. I have crisis suits, but they're equipped a certain way, and they're all on forty millimeter bases, and I need to rebase them. And their ankles suck, so I'm not looking forward to rebasing them. And I had like two to three boxes of the new ones, so I went ahead and built a squad of new crisis suits, kitted out to match what I have on the on my roster. I built a commander because I had a, a commander kit sitting around. I had a couple of sets of the new fire warriors from like other kits. So I built a squad of breachers. So I've got them all built and all primed. And that was on top of the death guard, uh, blight Lord terminators that I was working on that they are painted and washed. I need to do highlights and clean up and then basing them. I need to get started painting on the actual Tau stuff. And then my hobby AD&D, or AD&D, my hobby ADHD kicked in, and I'm like, I also want to paint my Blitz Bowl minis, and so I started working on that, because my brain is just all over the place lately, and I'm just like, ooh, this project, and that one, and that one, and that doesn't pay any attention to the other projects, but hey, things are finally moving from one column of my Kanban board to another, so progress is being made. Which is why I bought the new Warcry box, because then I had to move a whole bunch of stuff into the first column so I could keep moving things forward. <laughs> That's how that works, right? You just add more stuff when you're as things so the none of the columns feel empty and left out. Is that that's right? Yes. Is that it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> at, at least that's been my experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so I, I've actually done a lot of hobby work lately. Uh, unfortunately, the only things I've really finished are terrain, but I'm really happy with finishing the terrain, the terrain, like I can field a, like, I mean, I've always had like an, uh, a good mix of terrain, but now I can actually field like a table that looks like one of the U S open tables. So that's kind of cool. That's a good feeling. Well, let's see for me, I guess U S open, I think I'm probably going to go with Eldari sisters would be my backup idea. And I looked at custodes, but I think it'll, I'll probably settle on the, the Eldari, which I think I do have to paint some models for that, which maybe I should get started as with how fast I paint, uh, which is just a squad of shining spears because I've got them put together. I've got them primed. I just need to paint. In the meantime, I did continue my tournament thing of playing my factions against each other. And the Eldar was were able to dispatch the Harlequins, and now I'm just going by notes because this is probably like two or two and a half weeks ago that I actually played these. With the biggest thing is the Harlequins just I was not able to get pull off the secondaries because the Eldar just made it where it was very difficult. Uh Yanari were able to actually beat the Drukari. Mostly because um yeah, the swords on the three named characters that can ignore invone saves at times. Uh, Drezar and Lilith. Oh yeah, without their invone save, they just die. So, <laughs> that once the, the leaders were gone, the Drukari kind of just folded. Yeah. Um, sisters were able to pretty much crush Space Wolves. Um, Space Wolves came out strong. They destroyed a lot of the Paragon War suits in Morvenval. But then they started just dying. Um, 
<laughs> just a normal normal bolter fire and the fact that space the space wolf terminators could not take a 20 sister squad off of a point and that had two 20 sister squads that they the, the space wolves just didn't have the firepower to deal with it felt like well they had a lot of melee and Oh my gosh, the melee. I mean, they'd kill like three or four a turn, but by the end of the game, there was still like two or three still on the point. They were objective secured and the Terminators were not. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Chaos Knights actually beat Slanesh. That was one of my surprises. Um, but thinking about it, it really wasn't because the game board was the long game board and Slanesh's thing is, I'm going to get there and melee you. And the Chaos Knights have range. And they also got first turn. So, th- yeah. Um, Shalaxley, Hellsbane was dead, top of one. Zerachniel was dead, top of two. And I think the other Keeper of Secrets is dead, top of two. And just from shooting. Because there was just so much shots being done. And yeah, Chaos Knights first win and Slanesh's... And then Imperial Knights Custodes went to Custodes. This one was actually another back and forth one where it it was hard to call till the end. And once again, it's, I like the Imperial Knights, how they have like the bond abilities that you can put. But once again, if you have to spread them out to cover objectives, which you do, um, it's it gets really hard once you start losing if you either spread them out too much because you need the objectives or you just once they start dying it's kind of cascades down of well that night's gone i guess we'll not get the bondsman ability so it's i don't know i really really think the best knight type army is two knights and seven armagers just you you want the armagers on the board more than you do the the knights are kind of like your leader ones and the armagers are the ones that play so all in all it means the custodes and the eldari are still my two undefeateds and drukari is the only one that has not won yet um i've kind of got planned out i've planned out the next two rounds for myself but i have some concerns I'll, i'll try and get at least these two rounds maybe played out but i might stop and revise after ha- being halfway done because then i'll have a feel for how each army did and some of the factions that didn't play each other i could probably guesstimate how the games would go because i have a feeling by the time i get all these wrapped up or even just round four chaos demons book will be out so there'll be new rules for slanesh and then once leagues of otan come out i will probably put everything on hold because i wanted to try and get that built and painted and that's going to be where all my hobby goes as opposed to just kind of playing test games against myself so we'll see how it goes because like i might revise it after then and just maybe just do an actual like tournament setting instead of like doing a round robin of playing trying to get 45 games in just Mm -hmm. maybe a small each faction plays three games and make it like my own little mini tournament so it would only be like 12 or 24 games or something much smaller. It seems much much easier to handle. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing for the hobby. For me, uh, since work is going to start 
getting super busy for me pretty soon. I've been trying to focus on actually getting some hobby progress done. I finished painting Gasgull. That was mm-hmm. a good, like, like three days worth of, you know, sitting down and painting on nothing but him. Really happy with the way he turned out. And then I, I finished a, an Orc War Boss that I had put, you know, just the, the base colors on previously. Finished up Knob with a wall banner that I had converted. And... Um, then just the other night, I finished doing a, uh, Gene Sealer Cult Magus and have pretty much, you know, figured out what color scheme I'm going to use for them. And it's, it's, a black and silver and purple. And then like their skin is like this chalky white. Yeah, it looks. Yeah, I saw the picture you posted on Facebook. It looks really good, and that that is a lot of pro- hobby progress for me. <laughs> so that no, that's a getting Gasgol done alone is is impressive. Gasgol just it, and he looks really good. He's a beefy boy. Yes, <laughs> yes, he is. Now I I need to I, before I have absolutely no time to work on anything i want to get markai done and then you can have him him and his friend yep (laughs) and that will take us to the morale phase and uh this episode we have two things that start with s our first thing that starts with s is sandman space marine no that was close no Space Marine 2 isn't out yet, so we don't get to talk. We can't have that in the morale phase yet. Sorry. I'm looking forward to when that comes out because I really like Space Marine 1 and Space Marine 2 is going to be even more so because it's going to be Captain Titus versus Tyranids, which should be really cool. But no, we're going to be talking about the Sandman, i.e. the new series that came out like I think last week. Uh, on Netflix uh, based on the comics by Neil Gaiman. And for those of you who are completely unaware and uh, have not followed any sort of pop culture in the last week or so, um, The Sandman is a series that ran from like 1989 to 1994, or no, 1996, I think. Yeah, 1990, I think 1996. Um, And uh, it's only like 75 issues. It's been collected in several like a set of graphic i think about like 10 graphic novels and it is the story of a being called dream who is literally the embodiment of dreaming and he in fact he he is the lord of a realm called the dreaming which is where people go in their minds when they dream um and the entire story like, I'm not really giving away too much because this is in the first, both the first issue of the comic and the first episode is that in the 1910s, Dream gets captured by some wizards who are trying to capture his sister, Death, because of, in the comic, I think it's just they want immortality. And in the show, it's because 
they're like their sons died in World War One, and so they want their sons back. So they want death to give them their sons back, and they don't get death. They get her younger brother Dream, and the rest of the story basically proceeds from that, and like that's the event that kind of kicks off everything that comes later. Now, uh. If you are fans of the comic and you have not watched the series yet, you really owe it to yourself to watch it because it is a very faithful retelling of the stories from the first two graphic novels. In some cases, line for line, scene for scene. However, they are not entirely like trapped by what is on the comic. So like there are, there's a couple of characters that had to be like completely redefined because in the original comic, they are closely related to existing DC heroes because this was a line of comics that was put out by DC comics. So like in the first graphic novel, like the scarecrow is there and Martian Manhunter shows up and like, there's a, a, like one of the major characters is a minor Batman villain and uh, that all, you know, kind of is very closely tied. And there's like John Constantine is a character who is a major player in that. And the Netflix version, while it is a Warner Brothers slash Netflix production, they are not using any of the connections to the DC universe. So like there are characters who had to be either rewritten or, like, yeah, generally have their backgrounds completely rewritten. And I think they've redone it in a very good way so that, you, in fact, not only do you not feel the loss of them being tied to superheroes, but they end up being better written for it because the way it works now actually feels better and more cohesive. But it is very, very close to the comics and I was very impressed by how close they held to the comics. So um, if you like the comics at all, you will be fans of this. If you are not f- familiar with the comics, I think there's still a lot here to really enjoy. It's a very good story just from start to finish. And while they have not been greenlit for a second season yet, they've already started writing it so that when they get greenlit, they can hit the ground running because again, if they're basing this off of the existing comics, I will say that when the series ends, it ends. Like, it is done. Like, as far as the comics. So, they have a roadmap to follow on, like, what they will likely film and do. The only questions are, which stories from the comics are they going to tackle in um, these two uh or like in the next season, if they like, do they try to tackle one story, two stories? Cause like in this one, they do two of the, like they do the first two graphic novels. And uh, as far as content, um, like there's language, there's definitely some violence. Um, there's no, like there's some my very minor or implied nudity, but nothing like really shocking, but definitely I'd say a solid, heavy pg-13 light r rating if you know if that matters but uh yeah but it's just based off of i've only watched the first episode so far um i'm i'm excited to you know 
get a chance to watch the rest of it. Um, and I have, I am familiar with the setting, but, and like the characters and such, but have not actually read Sandman. So I've, I've got a, a, an interesting perspective, I think on, on the series, just based on like, just kind of tangential awareness and mm-hmm. I've I've really enjoyed the first episode and, and looking forward yeah. to more. No, it's it's really good. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and also, I will say the casting is in I, I think in every case is just spot on. Um, there's like there's a couple of characters where um, they cast people that didn't exactly look like the comic version, but the people they cast are perfect. Like, they get the characters, they get the roles. So, like, if you are a stickler for that, also know that Neil Gaiman himself was very deeply involved in the production of this and in the casting. Um, so, like, there's, like, don't think, like, oh, they took it away from them and they recast it to, to like, try to change it up for po- modern audiences. No, it's like Neil Gaiman cast who he wanted to cast like he he was very deeply involved in this um like i've seen one person complain like oh well you know um it's a shame that when they cast lucifer because we know lucifer was supposed to like the look of lucifer was supposed to be based on david bowie and neil gaiman actually come in it's like i have bad news for you then we couldn't get bowie for reasons mainly he's dead but (laughs) we did the next best thing (laughs) yeah so it's like uh, no, it's it's all fantastic, and I'm I'm excited to see where they go. So I think I think you will enjoy the next nine episodes very much. It it is. I'm just sad that there's not more of it right now. Give it to me. I need it. <laughs> um, the other S word that we are going to mention is Spelljammer, as in the new uh, Spelljammer uh, book set came out for D and D. If you are un- like, I'm sure everyone's familiar with D and D, but if you are unfamiliar with Spelljammer, it was originally a uh, a s- setting that came out in 1989, and it was D and D in space. It was called Spelljammer: Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Adventures in Space, and it was like this whole thing with spaceships made out of wood plying the void. Uh, carrying around their own little bubbles of oxygen with them and then traveling between star systems. So like somebody in the Forgotten Realms could theoretically eventually travel over to the Dragonlance universe the long way by ship. And there were a there were a bunch of books out for it between like 1989 and 1993 when it finally stopped. And uh there were never that many copies. I think there were less than a hundred thousand copies of the original Spelljammer sold. I had one of them once upon a time, but, uh, and it lay idle since 1993. So 30 years later, it was one of those settings that people joked like, Oh yeah, no, they'll never do Spelljammer or somebody's like, I hope they do Spelljammer, but they never will. But they had dropped little hints in here and there in the stuff that's been released for fifth edition D and D that, uh, well, spell jamming is a thing. And so now 
there they have officially released Spelljammer's Adve- Spelljammer Adventures in Space, which is a three book set that contains a book for like all the player rules, including all the rules about space travel, all the ships that you can use to travel between planets and systems, uh, and like all the new character races and things like that. There's a monster book, and then there's an adventure that is included as well, and a, uh, a DM screen is included uh and it is a lot of fun like i i haven't run obviously we just the book just came out yesterday as of recording so it's like i don't think anybody's run anything well i shouldn't say that because they've been releasing free adventures on the DD beyond website that lead up to this because like the adventure does not start at first level i think it starts at like third or f- like fourth or fifth level. So they've released adventures called start spell jammer Academy. It starts at fifth. It starts at fifth. So yeah. So for the first four level for levers, the first four levels are covered by these free adventures that they released on D and D beyond. So the idea is you play through those, you learn how the whole spell jammer universe works, and then you can jump right into the box set adventure. Which is a really cool way of doing those like intro adventures because usually they have to add those into the box. But now that Wizards of the Coast owns D&D Beyond, they can just load it there. But uh, I mean, it's a fully fleshed out setting and it allows you to do things in multiple settings and travel from one setting to another. Um, so... Uh, I was, I'm really, ex- I was really excited to get my or hands on it. Or just have adventures in the space. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just be like hunt space pirates and, you know, tr- find like travel to asteroids and find treasure and monsters there and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you can just travel around in space and have space adventures. And they have a whole uh, asteroid called the Rock of Brawl, which is like a big like city floating in space that you can use as your like base of operations and travel around and like they've they've given you everything you need to have adventures there uh, and it's i and just like as somebody who has been into D for a very long time and loves seeing how they are revisiting the aspects of things that came before it is so cool that they actually picked this one and just went with it so rob question for you if you had this book before you got into tau um, does that mean you liked Tau because all the spaceships are named after like fish, just like Tau's? No, it's I, that is purely coincidence. <laughs> and, and what I was going to say, uh, the uh, pretty much all of their books that they've been releasing, uh, this box set comes out with a uh, special edition cover that uh, is pretty shiny. It's Yeah, it's a nice foily shiny. And if you get the special edition, not only is the box shiny, every book inside is also shiny. Yes. And also the monster book features on the cover Boo, the miniature giant space hamster from Minsk and Boo of the Baldur's Gate games. So, uh, because that's where he is from originally is space because he is a miniature giant space hamster. Because Minsk and Boo are weird and funny and just, yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of yeah there. (sighs) And I think that as we round out, what, about three hours of recording? 
just about. Um, that rounds up episode uh, number 264. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with, well, in a couple of weeks, it will be the end of August, beginning of September. Our guess is that will probably be Chaos Demons, so I would not be surprised if we are talking Chaos Demons in our next episode. Uh, but we won't know until that is announced. So, you know, until that is released. So, until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and thanks everyone for writing in for our Litter Bag episode. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve.